you said love is that which enables choice. Can you, can you explain or expand on that statement? So in, in a lot of literature, people talk about what love feels like. And that's nice for the person that's feeling it. But I think that for a lot of us, we're really talking about how do we do love? How do we enact love? How do we recognize when someone else is loving us or that we're actually being loving to them? So, you know, in one sense, I, I could sort of say that this is, this is more about the practice of love than it is about the feeling of love. Love as an action. And so, first of all, when we're, when we're saying love is that which enables choice, what I'm basically saying is that I'm enabling the choice of the other. Right. So if I, if I say to, to my partner, I love you, first of all, there's the specificity of the you, right? Who specifically am I saying that to? And, 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 you know, if, 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 if the, if the person that I'm saying that to does, doesn't believe that I'm saying it to them, they're, you know, it's the generic you, I, I love everybody, then, then to some extent, they're not going to feel particularly enabled by that. They're not going to, they're not going to receive anything that is essentially meaningful to them personally because it wasn't intended for them personally. Whereas if I'm saying I love you and I'm basically looking right at them, I'm making it very, very clear that, 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 that this is a specific statement as a kind of uh, declaration on my part that I see them, that I know them, that I, that I, that I'm in a sense interested in enabling their choices specifically. Right? I'm not trying to make choices for them. I'm trying to assist them in their capacity to make better choices in their lives. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast, where we explore topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Daniel Schmachtenberger has Forrest Landry join us for the first public podcast interview Forrest has ever done. We dive deep into the work of formalizing the process of ethical consideration for the world that we live in and go into why we need to make choices in a different way than we have up to this point in history, due to technology giving us ever-increasing capacity for our choices to make huge impacts. Stay tuned as Forrest and Daniel explore this important topic in depth. This is our longest podcast episode yet, at about three hours. We encourage you to stick around for the whole piece, as we give a thorough overview of the principles of ethics and choice. Thank you for joining us for this amazing discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Collective Insights podcast. My name is Daniel. We are here with Forrest Landry today, which is a very exciting and special podcast for me. I met Forrest about five years ago, and he has become a very close friend and collaborator and mentor. And in the last decade of life, Forrest's work has influenced my own thinking more than anyone else's and it is a real honor to get to have him on the show and discuss the topics that we are here to discuss so Forrest, thank you for being here you're most welcome glad to do it so as a little bit of intro uh forest is a philosopher a scientist a engineer, a craftsman of more crafts than make sense, uh, a 
a polymath in a very wide sense. And one of the things that I'm very excited about and it's auspicious today is that this is the first interview that I believe he has ever done that is going to be publicly shared. His work so far has been shared with the world in books that uh, are incredible and require a tremendous amount of dedication to make it through based on the density of the books. And uh, the foundational one being a book called The Eminent Metaphysics. And there's another book, both of these are available online, called The Effective Choice. And one of my main goals of this podcast today was that uh, while the books are extremely worthwhile, you have to have already read them and seen the benefits of it to know they were worthwhile enough to go through the hard work of reading them. And so my, my hope is to uh, have a conversation that's an entryway into Forrest's thinking that uh, can inspire people to want to go deeper. And uh, then there are resources to go deeper. Uh, I'm going to share a few things just as kind of preface. As is the case with great thinkers, oftentimes they tend to not overlap with self-promoting thinkers because they want their alone time to do thinking and development. And uh, so that's why this is kind of a first time happening here. And I just ask that people listen in good faith and give the benefit of the doubt that when Forrest defines two words that seem like synonyms not being synonyms, it's because he's actually formalizing a semantic difference that is meaningful and important with a formal basis for how he does that semantics. There's a number of places where those types of constructions occur. And, um, and I'm also basically prefacing that there is the topics we're going to discuss today, which largely have to do with ethics, are derived from a much deeper metaphysics that we won't have the ability to do all the constructions of. So if you're really interested, this conversation will leave open questions that are addressable and that are addressed in other work, but are, will be beyond the scope of this podcast. So that's a note of preface. So regarding the topics of today, we could have started with how do we approach metaphysics itself, understanding the nature of reality and self and the relationship between, but I figured to have something that was closer to useful to people. Uh, we would start with one of the really profound things that arose from the metaphysics work Force was doing, which is actually uh, very novel insights into the nature of ethics, into the nature of choice. And that's obviously central to topics that we've talked about on the Collective Insights podcast and to the nature of what Forrest and I have come together and with others in collaboration around. Uh, as we are technologically getting such powerful choices, what, how do we know what good choice is to be able to wield so much potency of choice? And uh, so that's the topics we're going to be exploring today. So... I'll just start by asking, Forrest, how would you define ethics? So um, ethics is essentially the study of the principles of effective choice. So when we think about what makes a good choice, what makes an effective choice, like how do we know that a choice has been successful in manifesting um, something that is uh, genuinely beneficial, both for oneself and for the world that one lives in? Um, so if we're 
if we're going to um, think about choice in a way that is, um, you know, more general than just, okay, in this moment, I have this choice. What are the principles that I could use in every moment for every choice? Um, so in effect, uh, what are the thinking patterns, the concepts, the uh, ideas and beliefs and, and all the rest of the conceptual toolkits that we could bring to bear, um, you know, intuition or whatever, that, that would help us and guide us to make better choices on a consistent basis. So ethics is essentially um, the knowledge of these principles, the knowledge of these tools, and essentially the collected information that uh, we use to assist us to make higher quality choices on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, you said principles of effective choice rather than rules. Yes. Yeah, so we, I distinguish between um, ethics and morality. So, for instance, uh, if we have a world, say, like a, an email forum, right? So that's a, a world is a, is a place where uh, you can have interaction. You can uh, interact with other people. You can become uh, a citizen of an email community, for example. So um, in that place, you might say, okay, well, uh, the rules of participation are established by the forum uh, moderators or, or by the, the community of people that are, that are there in that forum. Um, those would be rules that are applied to the email forum from the outside, so to speak. Um, whereas ethics is more about how I bring myself into that community. So in other words, um, I think about them as the principles uh, that, that an individual, uh, in a sense, would you know, bring forward as, as part of their own process of making choices. So when we say, you know, a, a rule, we're basically a rule is, is a contextualized thing relative to a particular world or particular domain of interaction. Whereas a principle is contextualized by a self, by a consciousness, by a, uh, a body of knowledge that a person brings with them into a situation. So you can sort of see uh, rules as being like uh, applied from the outside towards the inside and principles as being applied uh, from the inside towards the outside. And so in that sense, the, the direction of application, uh, where it comes from and where it goes is distinguished. Uh, and so in that way, we can talk about uh, rules as being part of a moral system, uh, whereas ethics as being part of a principle system. Mm -hmm. So we can see the Ten Commandments as morals. Thou yes, shall not. Exactly. And we can see the golden rule actually as an ethic. It doesn't tell you what to do. It guides you a consideration of how to sense make to inform your own choice, but it doesn't tell you what your choice should be. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's a really good way to, to, to sort of hold those in mind because those are both really good exemplars of, of uh, uh, the ideas of rules as applied versus principles as applied. So why are you more centrally interested in ethics than morality? Well, as, as part of the um, underlying idea of metaphysics is to have a set of ideas that applies to all domains. So, for instance, if I, um, you know, have a thou shall not kill as a moral code uh, in a place where life and death is, is a possibility, uh, when I get onto an email form, uh, the notion of life or death just isn't really a thing. I mean, it's like I can have an email post or I can, I can not have an email post, but, but there's no real... Uh, notion of life and death in that particular circumstance. So, you know, it's hard to interpret thou shall not kill in that particular context. So in effect, you know, rules are, are really only good for the domain in which they've been defined. So in other words, you have to presuppose a language, you have to presuppose uh, some understanding as to the kind of phenomena that can occur in that particular world uh, before the notion of morality even becomes applicable. Uh, whereas if you understand the principles, then 
you can essentially approach any domain and say, okay, well, how do these principles translate into this context? Um, in other words, what are the what are the ways in which I can take these more basic ideas and bring them into some um, specific translation inside of that context that essentially will help me to, to, to be making good choices in that context. So in effect, principles are far more general, they're far more applicable, um, they're more abstract. So in the same sort of way, you might say, hey, you know, there's a circumstance where if we create these things called numbers, uh, then we can do things like uh, measure quantities and that helps us to communicate better in, in, in all sorts of, of, of contexts. Um, but in effect, the, the underlying idea behind mathematics is not specific to any particular world. You can translate those into all sorts of settings. You can use them for uh, surveying and, and measuring land boundaries, or you can use them for uh, plotting positions on a, on a boat or a spacecraft, or uh, you can use them for accounting and, and business and such. But the idea of a number is an abstract concept that you would take and apply in these different ways. So to the degree that we can bring the principles of ethics into multiple contexts, uh, it becomes re really relevant when, say, uh, you know, we're creating new games or, or new virtual worlds or we're developing new forms of communication or new ways of interacting with one another. And I think there are a lot of people that have concerns about the topic of morality writ large because it so often becomes a top-down control system. That's correct. And so would you see ethics where all of the individuals are having their own intrinsic basis for choice and formed by the right principles as obsoleting morals or as the generator function of appropriate morals within specific domains? I, I tend to think of it more as the generator functions. Um, so there is the hazard of, of you know, essentially a top-down control process, uh, which is essentially a, it's a known issue. I mean, anytime you have uh, resource capacity that can be captured by some small subgroup and, and therefore use it to their own ends and not to the benefit of the whole community, you can have issues with that. But, but in a larger sense, there's also the notion that domains change. So the kinds of rules that worked really well uh, in say ancient Greece might not be uh, so applicable in some uh, northern tribe in Alaska, for example. And so in effect, there, there are situations in where because the natural environment is changing or because the domain is changing. So we want to update the rules from time to time because the world change um, means that we, if, we, if we don't update the rules from time to time, we become increasingly maladaptive to, those, to, the, to that world. The rules don't keep up or keep pace. So in effect, we want to have the rules have uh, a touchstone, some sort of uh, thing that they connect back to to understand what it means to make a good rule or what it is that we need to, to change about the rule so that it remains in, in uh, evolutionary adaptiveness with respect to the, to the changes in the natural environment. Mm -hmm. So postmodernism would agree with the first point of no absolute morality, that it's going to be context-dependent, perspective-dependent paradigm dependent. But then you're going a step beyond that and saying that even though the rules are paradigm dependent, there are principles that are non-relative, that are true across all selves in relationship with all worlds. That's correct. So in effect, there's a, um, there's a kind of abstraction that allows us to understand the notion of goodness and bring the notion of goodness into specific contexts. And this is actually a really powerful thing because um, in effect, it, it allows us to answer questions about those topics in ways that we wouldn't have been able to previously. But it does require a kind of discipline. Like, so for instance, again, going back to uh, number systems and mathematics, 
you know, the real question isn't so much uh, whether the mathematics is true relative to itself. It's more a question of, can we take the principles of mathematics and apply them in these particular contexts? So you're, you're really looking for two things. You're looking for a, a notion of a valid uh, foundation, and then you're looking for a kind of soundness that applies that foundation to the domain. You need to be good at both of these, uh, or it doesn't work very well. And just in case listeners aren't familiar with the formal logic terms, can you define validity and soundness? So validity would be, so in effect, uh, say I have uh, the notion of a number. So I have the notion of two and three and four and so on. And then I have the notion of addition. And then I have the notion of equality. So I can say two plus two equals four and have that have a kind of logical uh, correctness relative to the definitions of numbers, addition, and equality. Um, and so in effect, as long as I, as I take this particular way of thinking of a number as, and, and these operators and this, this, this equate as being a, uh, a consistent perspective, uh, then I can start deriving theorems or, or concepts that are essentially built upon that. And that whole process is what we call validity, right? So, um, you know, is, is it the case that I've correctly used the, the ideas, um, combined them in the appropriate ways, and do I get this outcome? Is that actually consistent with the foundation? Um, that's all validity. Um, then the, the notion of soundness is where we, we're basically creating a relationship between, say, uh, a map and a territory. So, for instance, if I treat the numbers and the operators and the, and the particular statements that I look at as a kind of map, then I can say, okay, well, how does this map apply to counting sheep, for example? Uh, if I have uh, two sheep in this pen and I have two sheep over in this pen and I basically take the wall down between them, that's my addition thing. Uh, now I'm going to have a single pen with four sheep in it. And so the, the correspondence between sheep and the number two and the takedown of the wall and the addition sign and the, and the, the count of the sheep after the fact and the number four and that these all somehow relate to one another, that's a soundness construct. Mm -hmm. um, so in effect, what we're, we're really looking at is, um, is the map internally consistent? That would be validity. And is the map that we have relative, is it the, the right map for the territory that we're looking at? And that would be soundness. So you're using mathematics as an example of a valid system that can soundly map to lots of physical domains. And so we know it's a, it's a language that's used for the physical sciences. But you're using that as a metaphor for ethical principles that can map to uh, this concept of goodness in self-world relationships, which is really different than the whole idea of how we think about uh, typically systems that we would think of as valid and sound are all third-person objective systems. Um, yes. And so this is the, this famous issue that science holds that it can say what is, it can measure what is, but it can't say what ought. What ought is not a third-person thing. And so science and ethics are forever uncommensurable and never shall the twain meet, which is obviously a big problem if science when it's applied, creates technology, which increases the power of our choices, and yet there's no basis for what goodness of choice making means. So you're claiming to uh, be able to talk about what the goodness of choice making means in some fundamental way. Yes, this is correct. So, um, and in fact, there's, there's a lot of things that, that are actually hidden inside of what you just said that are actually really important. So one of them I'll, I'll just give a name to is this, this notion called the ethical gap. Uh, the ethical gap is, is essentially a reference to 
the difference between what our technology gives us the capacity to do and what our wisdom is to know what we should do, right? So essentially technology and science can tell us all the things we can do, but it doesn't give us any guides as to, well, what should we do? What is, what is the thing that we would prefer? What is the kind of basis by which we make good choices haven't been given all these options? Um, and, and so in order to do that, we actually need, uh, as, as you mentioned, a, a sort of shift from a third person point of view where the notion of causality is applicable uh, to a first person point of view where the notion of choice is applicable. And, and one of the great dilemmas of our age is that we really, at least heretofore, we have never had a good theory of choice. Um, even the notion of applying uh, the word theory to choice is to essentially almost already to be presupposing a third person perspective, i.e. that I have uh, a general uh, set of uh, rules that I could apply that define this particular uh, map and, and, and use that map as a way of looking at choice. And rules means causation. So choice is a result of causation by epiphenomena of that assumption. In effect, that's how it's looked at in the current uh, perspective. Um, and then these, these concepts themselves, uh, first person and third person perspective are entangled with even uh, more abstract notions such as the notion of symmetry and continuity. So in effect, if I look at um, scientific reason and the, and the notion of lawfulness is basically, those are all assertions of symmetry. It's a sameness of content and a difference of context. So in effect, there's, a, there's, a, there's the idea that the same laws, the same rules as far as physical matter and its transformations and the sort of causal phenomena associated with that are all gonna be consistent within the physical world from a third person perspective. And that's, this is like one of the deepest notions about what makes the scientific methods um, you know, you have to have observability and repeatability. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, choice, uh, insofar as it's more connected to creation, it's neither observable nor repeatable, right? I mean, if, if we're in effect going to have uh, a notion of choice that is, 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 is sort of philosophically grounded, we're not going to be able to ground it in the notions of symmetry. We're going to have to ground it in the notions of continuity. Consciousness is a kind of uh, unitary phenomena. It's a, there's, a, there's an underlying continuity uh, to sense experience and to expressive uh, potentials. And so in effect, uh, in order for us to understand ethics, we're not really going to be able to understand it on the basis of symmetry alone. We're going to have to actually understand the notions of continuity uh, at an abstract way to really account for the nature of choice. So for instance, if we're if we're looking at, you know, what are the principles of effective choice, one of the things we have to already assume is that choice is distinct from conceptually uh, causation. Causation and choice are, are peers of one another, that I can't derive choice from causation. And to some extent, uh, I'm not going to be able to derive causation from choice either. Uh, so the particular view that I'm describing is not um, either a you know world first and then self uh, arising in that context, or a self first and then a world as an imagined scene uh, within that, such as uh, a more uh, idealist perspective would would use. But that in effect we're looking at the relationship between um, self and reality, or symmetry and continuity, to understand the kinds of principles that give rise to deeper uh, ways of looking at things like ethics. Okay, so for the listeners. Please don't tune out right now uh, because a lot of concepts were just laid that are probably not familiar. I'm tracking the unfamiliar ones, and rather than detouring back to familiar ones, I actually want to explore these. So we're going to explore what symmetry and continuity and first person and third person and all these things mean 
because they're actually critical to the way that Forrest constructs this non-relativistic ethics, which you can get a sense of what a big deal it is to have an actually grounded sense that is commensurable with, but not derivable from the philosophy of science, a basis for what goodness of choice could mean. You can see like what a big deal that would mean for society creation, for jurisprudence, for lots of things. So, um, so you just mentioned the limits of the domain of science. You talked about measurable and repeatable, mm-hmm. and that's maybe not instantly obvious for everyone that there is anything outside of the domain of science that is real. So can you elaborate a bit? So one of the things that we need to do when we're talking about philosophy and, 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 and disciplined metaphysics, and so by metaphysics, I'm, I'm not saying kind of the new age perspective. I'm looking at a much more academic perspective, which has to do with um, things like, you know, what is, you know, what is real, what exists, um, you know, what is objective. And, you know, in effect, there's, there's a need for us to be very, very clear about the language we're using and the assumptions we make. So one of the things that, 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 that a lot of um, existing philosophy has done is, is treated the notion of to be real, right, to be basically, uh, to exist, and to be objective. And objective, we mean things like uh, measurable by more than one person or, or some part of a common world that we all experience. And so in effect, there's a uh, there's a conflation of these three terms, so exist, to be real, and to, to be objective. And, and to, in effect, uh, do this well, we actually need to distinguish those terms because each of, using each one of those is actually to make a different claim. To, to talk about something existing is essentially to say that um, there's a context in which it's a member. So in other words, we have a, a content within a context relationship. Um, and when we say something is real, we're basically saying that there's a subject-object relationship, right? That there's a there's a capacity to to uh, sense and to and to and to uh, express into into some framework from a subjective to objective point of view. And then when we say something's objective, we're basically saying, okay, if I have like three people in the room and I all ask them to to describe the thing that I'm holding, uh, that I can I can see a correlation between what I see and, and the feel in my hands and the descriptions that they each give to me on a linguistic level. And so in effect, it's the correspondences that that make the notion of objectivity, um, you know, part of part of why the scientific method has the the form and shape that it does. So in other words, uh, if we do a, a scientific uh, test, you know, we measure the boiling point of water, then um, what I get as a result should be the same as what you get as a result, and the same as what somebody in, in Paris, France, might choose to 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 um, perform this experiment would also get the same result. And so it's the it's the notion of I can interact with the world, and that the interactions that I have have these regularities and that we can all see these same regularities. So um, that's what the notion of objectivity is, is more getting at. So in effect, you can, you can see that uh, to some extent, these are, these are distinguishable uh, notions. Um, and, and again, I understand all this is, is abstract, but, but what it does is it allows us to, to start asking different questions about the kinds of things that are important. So just to clarify, because uh, it is abstract and not obvious, uh, objective, exists and real are synonymous, as you know, for many people. And so you defined, uh, you defined 
the differences as exists had to do with a content context relationship and real with a subject object relationship and objective with one object that had correspondence between multiple subjects. Well, we're thinking about it in terms of signals. So for instance, um, I receive the signals of, of, of the object that I'm holding, like let's say I'm holding an apple in my hand. And so I, I have the sensation of the apple against my fingers, its weight, you know, it might be a little cool if it's come out of the refrigerator or something. Um, and then I, I hear the signals of, of what people are telling me. So in other words, well, one person might say, well, I see a, a sort of reddish sphere. It looks to be about two or three inches in diameter. Um, I see this little stick out of the top, probably where it was attached to the tree and so on and so forth. And so what I'm hearing are these words and I'm interpreting them as being in correspondence to uh, the sensations, both visually I see it and, and, and feel it in my hand. And you know, to the degree that um, there is a uh, commonality between the, the signals that I'm receiving, both through the channel of, of my own personal sensations and then indirectly through the, through the channel of, of you know, my linguistic capacity to understand, uh, in this case, the English language, that I get a sense that there's something that is transpersonal about those perceptions, right? That there's, that there's more than just my own subjective involved in the capacity to sense that thing. Uh, so there's an intersubjectiveness that occurs with the notion of objectivity, which is really crucial to the, to the notion itself. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be able to distinguish between uh, myself having a dream and no one can see, or I'm, I'm hallucinating the, the, the apple and no one else can see it. Um, and that the only way that I could really distinguish between my hallucination and the, the actuality, quote unquote, of there being an apple in my hand is to, is to essentially ask other people, what do you see? So for the people who have some background in philosophy, you'll hear that Forrest is assuming a solution to the other minds problem and is referencing measurement and communication theory. And like, there's probably a heap of questions that come up. And if we took each of the rabbit holes, then we would have a 500 hour podcast. Um, but those rabbit holes are all addressed in the eminent metaphysics and the other work. So if you're interested in paying attention, none of the assumptions are un, uh, unaddressed or unvalidated. So, okay. So coming back, the reason we got into this rabbit hole of the difference between exists real and objective had to do with the limits of science because science doesn't give us an ethics. And so we're looking for what could give us an ethics that is at least not in violation of or somehow commensurable with science. So can you come back to that? So in, in the example, we, we, were, we were distinguishing between objectivity and real and exists. So science basically is, is based upon the notion of objectivity. But ethics, to some extent, uh, really is, is, is very much based upon the notion of the interaction, the, the realness. So in effect, there's a, there's a different conceptual toolkit. So to some extent, uh, objectivity depends upon the fact of there being an interaction between self and world, right? I'm sensing signals, and then I'm looking for correspondences between signals. But I, I, I can therefore ask the question, well, what if the signals that I'm receiving do not have correspondences? What if the signals that I'm receiving um, don't correlate, right? So in effect, the the class of signals that I'm receiving have uh, the capacity to be divided into um, those which have regular repeating patterns and those that don't. And so, um, in effect, there are things in, in the world which are 
um, non-repeating events, which happen one time. And so if I'm going to be looking at making choices, uh, if choices are in effect going to be uh, understood as in some sense having a uniqueness to them, right? Each of us uh, looking at uh, choices from uh, a situationally uh, specific, you know, I'm in this situation, not the abstract uh, sort of trolley problem where we're trying to talk about it from a general perspective, but, but in the personal way of, I'm faced with these situations, I'm faced with these dilemmas, what do I do that makes a good choice in this moment? And so in effect, what we're looking at is a, is a kind of non-repeatability in, in, in the basis of choice when we're thinking about it that way. So we, we need a somewhat broader toolkit than can be given to us just from the method of what's repeatable. Um, and that, that's, that's one thing. The, the other piece that, that comes up that's, that's really pretty relevant in this case is that when we say that there's a sameness, that this pattern maps to this pattern, or that this uh, underlying construction uh, connects to this other one, um, we have in the background introduced this notion of, of symmetry. But to, to really validate that, that, that those are patterns, we have to have actually perceived them in the first place, right? So there's an underlying notion of continuity that has also already been assumed, i.e. that there, there is a subject-object relationship that allows for a signal to move from the object towards the subject uh, in the case of perception. Uh, or from the subject towards the object in the case of, of expression, or in this particular case, what we would think of as a choice. So in order to, to, to even have a notion of choice, we have to have already assumed the continuity between uh, the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective to even begin the process of having uh, a, a way of thinking about this. So in effect, what, we, what we're already coming up against is that the notion of continuity is actually a relevant concept in these discussions. And then if we're going to account for choice uh, as having a uniqueness and as, as in a sense, uh, connected to this notion of continuity, then, then we're already starting to look at things uh, which are outside of, of the realm of what would be just described as observable and repeatable. Um, you know, the, the, the observability part of it um, is, is to some extent uh, supplanted because we're talking about expression, not perception. And the repeatability part of it is supplanted because we're looking at uh, the uniqueness of the situation rather than its its commonalities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, simply, because of re repeatability, because of singular events, there are things that are real that are not both measurable and repeatable, which means real but outside of the domain of the method of science. And that doesn't mean outside of the domain of some attempt for good epistemology, good attempt to be able to understand the nature of reality. And so we're looking here at what is the epistemology to understand the nature of the real, not just the objective. That's correct. And that gives us both increased epistemic capacity, ability to know, but then also increased capacity to make good choices in relationship to that knowing. Exactly. So in effect, you know, we're, we're, we can look at classical metaphysics as, as being about ontology, what is real, and epistemology, how do we know? But there's, a, there's actually a third branch, which is how do I express? Right? Okay. What, is, what, is, what is the good thing to do? So in effect, there's a, there's a sense in which the notion of ethics is more properly considered to be a uh, concept within the realm of metaphysics rather than in the realm of philosophy. Um, but that's, you know, just a historical thing that is how that's come about today. 
So there's, <clears throat> there's a kind of uh, symmetry or co-construction of perception and expression or choice that you're making here. That's correct. Yeah. So for instance, if we, if we assume a vector of time, so for instance, you know, there's a, there's a distinction between past and future um, in the sense of uh, I have received a signal or have not yet received a signal and, and, and those kinds of things um, that in effect you're, you're looking at um, when the flow of energy, when the, when the force is going from the self to the world, uh, that would be expression. And when the flow is going from the world to the self, that would be perception. Uh, but if you, if you turn the time vector the other way, then those two become symmetric with one another. So uh, in effect, um, you know, when we're, when we're talking about first-person point of view, we're talking about a notion of embedded time, i.e. We, we experience um, access limits on what we can sense. I, I can't just immediately sense tomorrow's lottery numbers. Um, they are, uh, from the point of view of today, uh, not accessible to me. I don't have a way of, of, of essentially intercepting those signals, not from a first-person point of view. Um, from a third-person point of view, we could uh, hypothesize that such a thing might be calculable, but it, it turns out that uh, in most cases where attempts are actually made to do so, that the uh, time and energy required to make that calculation is roughly equivalent to the amount of time and energy that's in the universe already, uh, and so you never actually gain uh, advantage there. But um, again, this is kind of a digression. Okay, so if we're going to define ethics in terms of symmetry and continuity. We need to construct these concepts more clearly. And so you started to construct that science is based on symmetry concepts. Can you clarify that a bit more? So um, speaking from a, from a, again, these, these are formal definitions. So there's, there's, a, there's a kind of specificity to the, to the words that I'm using, and, and I can fill in the details about those as, as it becomes clearer. But Symmetry is where there is a sameness of content, where there is a difference of context. So um, the, the key words here are sameness and difference, content and context. So in effect, the, the, the content is remaining unchanging, right? It's remaining the same, and the context is changing. So um, examples of, of uh, symmetry, for example, um, show up everywhere we have uh, conservation law, right? So I, I, I put a certain amount of water in a bottle and I cap the bottle and I make sure it's airtight. And then um, I take the bottle and I put it in a car and I drove drive over to my neighbor's house. And then um, I look at the amount of water that is in the bottle, uh, where it was where I started and where it was where I've ended up. And so although the bottle's in a different place, the amount of water in the bottle is the same. So we call this uh, conservation of matter in this particular case. Um, when we're looking at um, symmetry in the sense of uh, mirror images, for example. So for instance, um, if I were to draw a square on a piece of paper and then uh, turn the square, you know, like I take the piece of paper and I rotate it 90 degrees, uh, say counterclockwise, um, the square looks the same, even though if I was standing as a little you know, guy, a model on the square, and I looked at the world, you know, the world all of a sudden is changed, right? I see uh, the lights in a different place, the windows are in a different place, the door got moved. Uh, when, the, when the square was turned, through me standing there, I see a different world around me, but um, the, the, the content, the, the shape of squareness is still the same. And so in effect, what's happening is, is that we can, we can pretty much take the notion of sameness of content and difference of context 
and use it as a way of looking at the notion of symmetry in a profoundly general way. So in effect, every, every concept of symmetry as it appears in, in literature, uh, in one way or another, implicitly makes the sameness of content, difference of context assumption. And, um, you know, it's not always explicit, but it's, it is always present. So in effect, we can be very confident that the, uh, the definition is actually a good one. Um, and the reasons for the choice of words, uh, sameness, difference, content, and context, it's all, is also uh, well connected to this notion of comparison. Right? So for instance, if we're going to uh, talk about measurement or talk about process where we are uh, looking at signals and so on and so forth, um, you know, anything that we would, we would essentially be doing within the scientific method is in some way or another going to connect to the notion of comparison. So in effect, the, the notion of symmetry is therefore, uh, by being defined just in terms of the notion of comparison, is therefore a very, very profound concept. It's very, very important. And so scientific laws are formulated in terms of uh, some stuff on either side of an equal sign. Mm-hmm. And the equal sign is a symbol of symmetry. Yeah, it's a symbol of sameness. That the thing on the left side and the thing on the right side are in some sense the same. Um, but, but even the notion of lawfulness itself is, a, is an example of symmetry. So, for instance, if we say, you know, um, on this uh, planet, uh, objects attract one another because of this thing called gravity, um, then we can be pretty confident that on the other side of the universe that objects also over there will attract one another because of this thing called gravity, and that gravity is a quote-unquote universal phenomenon. Um, electromagnetism or any of the things that, that we are describing um, you know, in any of these fields of, of, of study that, that we call science is looking at the, the regularity as, as, as if it was something that applies everywhere universally. Um, and so, again, sameness of law, right, same law, uh, different context in terms of position in space, uh, position in time, or position in possibility. So these types of law-based symmetry concepts have obviously been profoundly useful and empowering to humans. The, they allow us to land a rover on Mars because the same principles of gravity and ballistics and thrust are going to apply in a domain that we've never done it before. And we have enough confidence that we can actually do pretty radical stuff, right? If we figure out a law like that in a few domains, know that it applies to all the domains. So the result of that is all the technological advancement that we have. What what can't those symmetry concepts do that matter? Well, we, we've said it already. The, the, the thing is, is that the, the concepts allow us to predict the future, but it doesn't uh, in places where we have an option, right, where we can go down two different paths, where there's a, a certain amount of randomness um, to, to essentially say, well, how do we want to respond to that? How do we want to, to, to select from those options where a selection is possible? Um, so one of the things that was a real revolution in physics was um, the, the idea of objective potentiality. So when quantum mechanics was, was starting to be developed as a theory, one of the things that was really striking about it was, was the idea that there are some things that aren't already predetermined, um, that there was, there was a, at least a, a bifurcation of a possibility space. Um, and so a lot of different interpretations arose out of this. So you have... Uh, the many worlds interpretation, which basically says that all possible paths are explored. 
Um, and then you have the Copenhagen interpretation, which basically says, well, um, one specific path will be explored. We just don't know which one, but once it's chosen, uh, you know, the, the nature of what we're calculating now has to account for the fact that it's that specific one. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, there's a, um, there's this, this realization that the notion of symmetry can only carry us so far, right? That, that if, if you look at the, at the underlying um, issue, uh, you know, about the, the Born distribution, for example, is there's, a, there's, there's literally a limit to how far the concept of symmetry can be taken before the concept itself no longer becomes applicable. And the places that that shows up is uh, at the, the limits of the domain, um, at the scale of, of, of the extremely small. There's a, there's a point at which the notion of time and space break down. It's called the Planck limit. And then there is the, uh, the notion of the absolute elsewhere, uh, things that are beyond uh, the time-light cone, beyond uh, what the farthest uh, object that can be seen is, you know, beyond the edges of the universe. And so, in effect, there's, there's, there's places where we have uh, clear limits to where we can apply the notion of symmetry because they're literally outside of this universe. Um, but in a more specific sense, there's, there's also the very first-person perspective, which can't be accounted for by uh, symmetry concepts either. If I want to look at uh, things like psychology or consciousness or mind or, or the kind of subjective experiences that, that we have, uh, the symmetry concept... Um, Again, because it's really only talking about the kinds of things that can be perceived, not about the kinds of things that can be expressed, it doesn't give us a real good guide for understanding how to approach topics like that. For that, we need a different concept. We need the notion of continuity, which is essentially as fundamental as the notion of symmetry. It's, just, it's essentially a definition, which is a peer of the notion of symmetry. But it's a distinct notion, and it turns out that there are very deep relationships between the notion of symmetry and continuity. But I can't describe continuity phenomena in terms of symmetry phenomena, and I can't describe symmetry phenomena in terms of continuity phenomena. And this is uh, essentially what is called the, uh, the mind-body problem, right? How do we um, create a first-person perspective from a third-person perspective, or how do I create a first-person, a third-person perspective from a third-person perspective? It turns out that there's really only one right way to treat that, and um, at, at least in the writings that I've seen so far, that hasn't yet been, been uh, uh, well addressed. Okay, so again, those who are paying attention, this is foreshadowing uh, a solution to the hard problem of consciousness that is neither construct third person as an epiphenomenon of first person, the way idealism or solipsism would, nor have first person be reduced to third person the way physicalism would, which uh, I'm just going to flag that and come, come back to continuity. So you define symmetry. Can mm -hmm. you define continuity? So continuity is where there is a sameness of content, where there is a sameness of context. In other words, it's the notion of no abrupt shifts. So if I change the context by an infinitesimal amount, then I'm not going to end up with a more than infinitesimal amount of change in the content. So if I, if I look at a continuous function, like if, I, if I'm looking in mathematics, for example, and you see a graph, it looks like a smooth curve. It's because the notion of smoothness has to do with the, the, the fact that changes are gradual. Like if I make a very slight change on the x-axis, then I'm only making a slight change on the y-axis, and they're in proportion to one another. Um, whereas a discontinuity would be a difference in content where there is a sameness of context. So in effect, the, the notion of discontinuity 
is in effect almost the exact opposite of the, the notion of symmetry, right? Symmetry was a sameness of content where there is a difference of context, whereas discontinuity is a difference of content where there is a sameness of context, right? So in effect, what we're really looking at is a, is a cluster of four definitions, symmetry, asymmetry, continuity, and discontinuity. And so in effect, if we're, if we're looking at models of the universe or we're looking at models of the subjective, it kind of matters which of these foundations, which of these possible four concepts we're going to use. So um, as I've mentioned, the, the notion of symmetry is profoundly important to, um, to thinking about uh, external phenomena in the world. Um, and the notion of, of continuity is profoundly important to thinking about subjective phenomena, things that we would think of as mind and self and consciousness and, and all of the phenomena that we call beliefs and, and, and that sort of thing. So in effect, when we're, when we're talking about uh, continuity, we're basically saying, you know, I, I have this inner subjective experience of, of a, I am the same person I was yesterday and I will still be the same person I am tomorrow. That the notion of memory is a, is a kind of persistency that, that means that uh, the kind of person that I am, the kinds of choices that I make, the way I perceive the world, and, and, and sort of the gestalt that I call myself has a, has a kind of continuity the same way that um, you know, gradual changes in, in, in external objects would, would also apply. Um, but, but the notion of gradualness, the notion of, 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 of being as one in, in oneself, and essentially that all parts of myself are connected together, um, you know, these things are connected to health, for example. So um, say, say I, was, I, was, I was interested in, in going to a therapist. Uh, the ideal of, of good therapy is, is that I've, I, I learn about all aspects of myself, and I, and I learn how to integrate them in a way so that all parts of myself work together as a cohesive whole. Um, if I'm divided against myself, I'm obviously not going to be very effective in the world. I, I have to, in effect, act as a whole unitary being in order to be effective uh, in my relationships with others. So in neuroscience and in the philosophy of mind, this question called the binding problem, when there's a bunch of different sensory inputs, how is there a continuity of a sense of self and a continuity of world that at all? And how does it persist across time? you're saying one of the reasons that neuroscience would have a hard time with it is because they're going to try and figure that out with symmetry concepts. Yes. And, and not only that, the way the question's even asked is already presupposing a third person point of view. So effectively, uh, the, the very nature of those, those questions essentially presupposes, okay, I'm going to look at it from a trans temporal point of view. I'm going to look at it over a broad spectrum of space. I'm going to I'm not going to be just looking at a single point or a single moment in time. I'm going to be looking at a constellation of of places and a constellation of times. So I'm looking at multiple brain structures and, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a correlation between the subjective experience and these, these neural correlates. And the thing is, is that if, if, if I've already presupposed a perspective of being able to look at something from the outside, I've already taken a third person point of view. I've already introduced the notion of symmetry as being the reasonable basis to think about this. Um, and unfortunately, uh, to try to construct continuity out of symmetry, uh, it just doesn't really work that way. I mean, we could do things like that on a mathematical level, but that, does, that isn't really a proxy for the first-person perspective. So you gave examples of symmetry in our experience of objectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the symmetry that we would see in geometry or conservation law. You just gave some examples of continuity in terms of memory uh, and continuity of our sense of self. Is there anything else with regard to continuity phenomena that could ground the concept for people? Well, the idea of, of um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of values connected to the notion of continuity and, and these are ethical kinds of things. So for instance, um, you know, when we, when we are, are interacting with a, with a, with a, with a loved one or someone we've been a friend with uh, for a really long time, if, if all of a sudden, uh, you know, there's a, there's a complete shift in one's emotional stance, like, uh, you know, a person went from being calm to all of a sudden being incredibly angry, right? Um, you know, the, the, the person on the receiving end of that emotional shift is going to be wondering what the heck just happened. I mean, what, why was there this abrupt shift? And, and, and to some extent, that's now a strain in the relationship. So in, in, in a lot of ways, there's a, there's a kind of accounting that we want to do where we're, we're saying, okay, you know, what actually happened here? You know, if, 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 if people enter into uh, very, very abrupt emotional shifts, then to some extent, it becomes very hard to relate to, to understand, because I, I don't have a good uh, way of, of, of knowing uh, what sort of relationship I'm in with that person at that moment. Um, uh, more direct examples would be things like war. So for instance, you have two countries and uh, all of a sudden one breaks off, uh, you know, negotiations with the other and sends their ships over and starts raiding, uh, you know, some natural resource or, or taking all the women and children or something. And, and so in effect, the, the abrupt shift from uh, conversational process, uh, diplomatic relations to uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, negotiation by other means using uh, guns and bombs and such like that. Uh, that is a felt discontinuity. The, the people on the receiving end of that are going to basically say, wow, I, 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 didn't, I didn't get a choice as to whether or not I'm going to be shot at. So in, in a sense, what we're, what we're really getting to is, is that a lot of the stuff that ethics is concerned with is not just uh, symmetry concepts, but also continuity concepts. Um, you know, the, the, the notion of having a heritage, for example, or having a continuous lineage, uh, you know, that my family is, is in a sense going to be represented in the future by my children. There's a kind of continuity there. There's a, there's a sense of values that move from one generation to the next. And so, you know, a lot of the thinking that, that, that has existed about ethics uh, so far has been uh, pretty much focused on symmetry uh, ways of looking at the world, uh, things like the golden rule, do unto others as you have to do unto self, uh, that's a symmetry expression. Uh, but things that would prohibit, say, rape or um, uh, degrading the environment or uh, things along those lines, those all have to do with continuity principles. And so while symmetry principles, because they are connected to things that are objective, uh, that are very easy to see, very easy to talk about because they're forms, they're really easy to think about, again, because they're forms, um, has sort of dominated the, the discussion because they're easier to work with. Whereas when you're talking about continuity things, well, it's not really a form. It's kind of like this sort of amorphous mass and the, and the nature of, of, of where the edges are is not, you know, obvious. You know, we're talking about slopes and we're talking about, you know, things that are, um, you know, connected and, 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 and not in terms of, um, you know, hard edges. You know. So in effect, there's this, there's this thing where, you know, chronic problems leading to acute situations become, uh, you know, part of the, the tool set that we need to now account for, um, part, of, part of the phenomena that we need to account for with a better tool set. And so in effect, what I'm, what I'm really trying to, to get to is to, to basically say, first of all, that that tool set that we're looking at is actually a very different tool set than the kinds that we've been accustomed to previously. 
and that it has its own foundation that is uh, equally as primal as that of the uh, toolkits that we have used heretofore with great success. Okay, so you actually just gave some examples of ethical considerations that are applications of symmetry concepts and ethical considerations are applications of continuity concepts and they're all familiar to people. So it's like the, the heuristic of these concepts aren't unfamiliar even though the formalizations haven't been clear. That's correct. So you mentioned the golden rule with regard to a symmetry concept. So the idea that there's some symmetry of how I would treat them relative to how I would want them to treat me is kind of a symmetry concept. Mm -hmm. I think the pie slice theorem is a very clear way of thinking about symmetry ethics, right? I can, I can slice the pie and you get to pick, or you can slice the pie and I get a pick, but I don't get a slice and pick because basically I'm saying I am dealing with you in a way where I would be willing to be on the other side of the deal. I'm not dealing with you in a way where I wouldn't be willing to trade places, which is very clearly a kind of symmetry concept. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then continuity concepts of ethics also, it's like the basis of why we give notice before leaving a job or leaving an apartment so that they have time to make a transition and they aren't stuck with something. The reason we give severance to someone if we're having to let them go, the reason that we talk through a big decision with somebody else as opposed to just making it, these are all not unfamiliar concepts, but you're saying these are not symmetry concepts. They're these continuity are, concepts. And they all involve a notion of changes in time, it seems, mm -hmm. more than the symmetry concepts do. That's right. Symmetry can be thought of in relation to space. So I can have a, um, you know, a static image, like, I, you know, we, talk, we talked about a square as being a symmetric image. I can flip it over, I can rotate it, um, you know, I can, I can do lots of different mirror images and, and, and still end up with the same shape. But that shape is something which is a, is, a, is a distributed construction in space. Whereas when we're looking at continuity, we're really looking at something which is grounded in time. So in other words, the rate of change. Um, so one of the, one of the underlying uh, ideas here is, is that we want to have the rate of change be within a certain range. If it's too fast of rate of change, uh, then uh, a person can't adapt. They can't, they can't respond to the situation. They're not given the capacity to engage with and to stay in a connected way or to stay in integrity. Um, whereas if we're looking at too slow a rate of change, um, then there are also problems, right? If, if, I, if I basically talk about something where, um, you know, the, the, the amount of energy that is flowing, um, you know, when we talk about energy, we're talking about a capacity or a measure of change, essentially. But the, but the idea here is, is that, you know, I need a certain amount of food to eat. Um, we might need a certain amount of, of, of fuel to keep a civilization going, for example. Um, and that, you know, abrupt changes to having too little of, of those kinds of things is a problem. But also just the mere fact of it being too little is, is also a problem. So, you know, too much, too little, or too fast a rate of change. These are all continuity concepts. And we're looking for a kind of smoothness in those, in those ways of thinking about it. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's, it's not that people don't have an intuition about these kinds of things. It's that it needs a different kind of formalization. Um, and that formalization is not going to kind of come out of symmetry. It's going to come out of its own foundation of continuity. So the concept of rate, that there is a right rate to continuity ethics is very interesting. And again, I think it's intuitive, but people haven't 
generally formalized it this way. So if you're choking and you need CPR or Heimlich maneuver and I do it tomorrow, that doesn't really help very much. It's too late. And uh, so there is being able to match the timescales of necessity in an important way. And Mm -hmm. if on the other hand, if you're part of a village and I control the water supply to your village and for some reason I need to turn the water off, I need to give you some months of notice so you guys can dig a well or have the time that's needed to find another solution. Otherwise, there's going to be an ethical issue if I simply change the basis of what you can count on too quickly. Correct. Um, and so, in effect, what we're what we're really looking at here is, is 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 a different set of principles that are coming from a first person perspective rather than from a third person perspective. And it's really really easy for uh, people that have uh, you know become very accustomed to the successful uh, application of symmetry concepts in the areas of uh, mathematics, uh, science, and technology, uh, to have a much harder time to try to relate to uh, things on a psychological or sociological, anthropological level, you know, looking at evolution, which itself has uh, a certain amount of continuity principles built into it, right? The, the idea of the genetic code is effectively a, a memory that transfers information from the past into the future. And so, um, in effect, what we're, what we're looking at here is, is essentially... Um, really being aware of where the assumptions of symmetry creep in and modify our thinking process that really needs to be grounded in the different set of tools. Um, and, it, and it's very, very easy to do that considering that, that you know, people want to do the thing that's been successful. And of course, the thing that got us here uh, has, has been symmetry concepts, but what got us here won't get us there. And the kinds of problems that face the world today uh, require a different kind of discipline than that has, that, that has reached us uh, very effectively to this point. So you brought up genetics. It's a very interesting example because there is a kind of memory from one generation to the next, and there's also changes, but there's a rate of change, right? And so you don't get more mutations or more combinatorial changes in one generation than can actually be factored by the continuity of both that body and the whole ecosystem. Yeah, otherwise the integrity of the individual breaks, breaks apart. The individual can't make it. So now when we start to think about the near-term future of the ability to CRISPR the genome pretty radically in one generation, we start to get big questions around the conservation of the continuity dynamics. And this is an example of the type of ethical considerations that have to be involved with that level of technology. Correct. So in a sense, there's a, uh, there's a kind of utilitarian ethics, which is dominating the, the conversation uh, heretofore, which is you know, really trying to, to use the concepts of optimization to uh, identify, okay, if, we, if we're going to do more of the same, then, you know, we'll, 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 we'll get really, really good at making this thing just like the, the thing that was, was uh, in the past. But if you have a changing environment, if you have a changing circumstance or you're in a different situation and you're not accounting for the fact that it's a different situation, then the thing that worked really well in the past might actually work terribly in the moment um, or in the future. So in effect, there's a, there's a need for us to continually be aware of the environment, the, the context in which change is being made. And we're really talking about two contexts. We're talking about the context of the world, you know, what, what era that person lives in, what community they're in. But we're also talking about the subjective context. What are all of the choices that that person has made previously? What are the, the complete set of values that they have? What are the, what are the total 
um, experiences that they can they can bring forward as a kind of wisdom to make a better choice. And so, you know, if I if I take a person from one community and I put them into another community, uh, and they try to make choices with respect to the first community, they're not going to do very well in the new community. Um, whereas if they, you know, basically have this, this this sort of principled notion, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, that at least they're going to be able to to find their footing and figure out kind of how to navigate. And so, in in a lot of ways, um, you know, what I what I'm really just 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 coming back to is is this notion of that the, the the notion of the first person, right? The notion of choice is more of a search problem than it is an optimization problem. I'm not trying to optimize. Um, how, like if I, if I go back to the example of taking a person out of one community and putting them in another, let's say they travel and they're, they're you know, they're in some other country, um, you know, to the degree that they are uh, sensitive and aware of the new environment that they're in, they're in effect, you know, using the principle of do as the Romans do, right? They're, they're essentially now responding to the circumstance that they're in. They are uh, being present to the, to the here and now that they are, are, are actually engaged in. And so in, in that sense, they are, they're just going to be more effective because they're responding to the situation as it is rather than the situation as they would imagine it to be. Um, and, and that's really important. You know, if, we, if, we're, if, we're, if we're using the wrong map, we're not going to be able to understand how to navigate in the new territory. So you've introduced the concept of symmetry and the concept of continuity and said that we have some intuitive concepts of ethical considerations that kind of map to both. Uh, can you formalize? There's a way of being able to formalize ethical considerations in terms of these. Uh, yes, there is. Uh, I should warn you that this is, this is an abstraction. So while I can, I can say the, the, the formalized state, um, it probably won't make a lot of sense to most people, but it, it can be done. It's a little bit like uh, asking me to uh, recite Maxwell's equations and then say, well, now that you understand these equations, you know uh, the totality of everything there is to know about electromagnetism, which is uh, pretty much the totality of everything about chemical and, and radios and televisions and all the rest of that stuff. Of course, that's not obvious. Um, so in effect, there's a, uh, there's a way to take the notion of symmetry and continuity and translate it into uh, a, some, a, a very, very abstract foundation uh, that, that is generally applicable to, to multiple domains. Um, so where the objective context is the same and the subjective context is the same, that the, um, that the, that the content of, uh, the content of expression should be the same, right? So for instance, if I, if I, if, if I'm basically, um, the same person in the same situation, I should respond the same way. Um, if I, if I have a, if I, if I basically shift the objective context and I keep the uh, subjective context the same, I'm the same person but in a different situation, then we can now say, well, under those circumstances, I should still say something that is, that is at least parallel to that, right? So for instance, if I'm um, here today and I'm telling you something, and then tomorrow I, I, I say something different, I should be able to account for what that difference is in terms of some gradual shift. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of continuity concept in that, that expression. Um, and then the, then the, the symmetry notion is, is, is that, you know, for example, um, if I, if I say the same thing, um, in, to one person, I should say the same thing to another person, uh, you know, about the same topic, because again, 
uh, if I didn't, it would effectively be a kind of deceit. You know, I, I, I told one person one story and another person another story. So that's where symmetry shows up. Uh, so the kinds of things that we think of as, as um, how I represent and how I uh, connect to the world should build both my integrity, the world's integrity, and the relationship between self and world's integrity. So in effect, if I, if I have the rate of change be too fast, then I've either degraded my integrity or the world's integrity or the relationship's integrity. And if I, if I give mismatched signals, if I, don't, if I don't allow for signals to build on one another for, for, for larger constructions to be created, uh, because I haven't created enough symmetry in the process, if, if what I say doesn't match what I do, um, then there's, there's, again, a sort of loss of integrity. There's a, there's a breakdown in the sense-making that would be necessary in either the self or the world or the relationship between them. And so those are the kinds of general ways in which the notions of symmetry, continuity, uh, and ethics, uh, the ethics essentially gets expressed in terms of symmetry and continuity. Um, there is a formal statement of it uh, on, on the website, um, uh, uvsm.com. Uh, down down near the bottom, there's a, there's an essay on this sort of thing where it really goes into the specific statements of these things, and, and, and people can look at that if they like. Okay, so you you actually just started kind of defining goodness of choice with respect to the word integrity, mm -hmm. and that a good choice increases integrity of self, integrity of world, and integrity of the relationship between self and world. Correct. So can you say more, like, how are you defining integrity here, and why is that the right notion for thinking of goodness? Well, first of all, while the, the notion of integrity is the right word, we could, we could choose a few others. We could talk about uh, life, for example. So um, does the uh, interaction between self and world uh, bring aliveness to me, bring aliveness to the world, and bring aliveness to the connection? Uh, we can talk about meaningfulness in that same way. Um, more abstract ways that, that, that essentially get more to the nub of the matter would talk about things like um, the, the, the maximum of the product. So, for instance, if I, if I say, okay, um, integrity is um, both a full realization of actuality and a full realization of potentiality in vivid connection to one another. In other words, that, that I want to have uh, as much of like if, if we think about uh, having your cake and, and to eat it, okay, to eat it is a possible choice. It's a, it's a potential thing I could do that would give me enjoyment of the cake at some future point. And the actuality is I have the cake. I, it's in my hand. Um, there's, a, there's essentially a realness to it. I'm not talking about an illusionary cake. I'm talking about a real cake, right? And so in effect, what, what we want as, as living creatures and, and, and the thing that would be most meaningfulness is to, is to have uh, both a maximization of the actuality, what we can do, and a maximization of the potentiality, what we could do. And so in effect, um, you know, when we're talking about integrity, we're basically saying, well, if I make a choice, but that choice in making that choice, although it manifests a particular thing, means I'll never get to make any choices again at any future moment. Well, that's, that's a choice that doesn't further, right? Um, you know, so we could use the technical word uh, evil, right? That which does not further, right? Um, but in a sense of if I make a choice, but there's no actuality, there's no outcome, um, then I can't distinguish between having made a choice and not having made a choice. Um, so in effect, 
you know, we want to have a choice that has some consequence. And we want that consequence to also be the kinds of consequences that beget future choices. And so in the notion of, of integrity of, of the relationship between self and reality, we're really looking for both actualized and potentialized. Um, and, 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 and that basically is now starting to get into some real fruitful territory because from here we can basically say, well, if we're looking at an optimization function, uh, you know, a utilitarian way of thinking about ethics, well, we now have this sort of symmetry principle where we can do optimization. But if we're looking at a value ethics, you know, a notion of goodness that has to do with things like life and meaningfulness and, and uh, you know, a notion of goodness that is connected to uh, some sort of sense of, of coming together with fulfillment to, to realize one's dreams, to realize the, the, the utopia of the world, so to speak, um, that, that in effect, we're going to need to, to look at it as a search function. What is, what is the thing that we, 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 we dream of? What is, what is the thing that, that, that feels, how, how do we characterize the notion of feels good? Okay. And so, um, you know, now we can start talking about things like joy and pain, right? Joy is, is when the, the perception of, of, of an increase in potentialities is occurring. Uh, and pain would be uh, where there's a, a sudden perception of a decrease of potentialities. Right. So in other words, if I, if I disconnect self from world uh, very, very suddenly, that's, that's, that's an experience of pain. And, and again, all these concepts are connected. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of infrastructure that ties all this together. But I'm, again, I'm trying to just give a flavor of how we could connect um, you know, these deep concepts of symmetry and continuity, um, the notion of integrity, life, meaningfulness as, a, as, a, as an expression of continuity, and then um, you know, how that starts to inform ethics that, that connects to common sense concepts like sense, um, you know, sensing feels good, pain, joy, and that sort of stuff. Okay. So this is so ridiculously beautiful and exciting that the consideration is for the potential and the actual, the self and the world and the relationship between them all simultaneously. Correct. And so if you talk about increasing aliveness only of the actual, I might think that the thing, the addiction kind of behavior is a good choice because I have an increased sense of aliveness in the moment. But then if it decreases my aliveness or my integrity or the relationship between me and the world in future moments, that wasn't actually an ethically good choice. Yeah. And so if I'm if I do something that increases my aliveness but harms the world or harms my ability to make future choices by harming my relationship with the world, it's also not a good choice. So what you're looking at here is sacrifice of self for other or sacrifice of other for self or disconnect self from the world or sacrifice now for future or sacrifice future for now are all theory of trade-offs that don't equal the best consideration, the most full consideration. That's correct. So in effect, if we, if we, even the notion of treating it as a theory of trade-offs is to have already assumed a third person perspective, right? So we're basically saying, okay, this is the range of allowable options. This is the uh, ways in which this option relates to these other options that if I have more of this option, I have to have less of these other options. So in other words, there's already a bounding context. And if, if we make an assumption that there's a bounding context and that um, you know, there's some sort of equating of this option and these other options via some sort of, um, you know, mathematical relationship such that uh, X units of this option equal Y units of this other option. Maybe it's not a linear relationship, but there's some relationship there. 
then uh, already I've constrained the question of ethics to a optimization problem. But a lot of times what we're really looking for is what are the right questions? Is it even the situation that we think that there's constraints of these kinds? I mean, how do we know that those constraints are the correct constraints? Um, you know, if we, if we just take uh, those constraints for granted, then uh, to some extent, we've already limited the range of places that we're looking for, for effective choice. Uh, it's a bit like the searching for the key under the lamppost scenario. If I, if I happen to have the case where the key is in the place that's illuminated by the lamppost, you know, at night, you know, we're looking for our keys. We dropped them. We don't know where we dropped them. If they happen to be under the lamppost, then great. The search function has found the keys. But on the other hand, if I, if I only limit myself to searching where the lamppost is um, and I don't give myself any other options, I might not find the keys. There might not be a win-win choice under those circumstances. And so uh, in that particular case, I've, I'm not asking the right questions. The right question may be, well, forget the lamppost. Do we have a flashlight? And if I produce a flashlight, now my search space expands enormously to basically go anywhere that I can reach with my flashlight. And so in effect, there's a there's a need for us to think about ethics as a search problem, as a, as a right question, um, as much as it is to think about it as some sort of theory of trade-offs consideration. Okay, so this is a good time to introduce the distinction you make between choice and decision, which most people hold synonymously. So um, decision decides, right, is to, is to kill or cut off options. So if I... If I basically um, have a list of 10 options and I say, okay, well, uh, options one and eight and six are, are off the page, we can't consider those options because they're just bad, then effectively um, I'm, I'm, the, the, the notion of to decide is essentially to say, okay, everything else is not an option and the only thing that's left is what we're gonna do. Um, Whereas to make a choice is essentially to say, okay, well, I've got these 10 options, but no, you know, none of these really feel right. They don't look good. There's, there's, there's problems with each of these. Let's find a way to add 10 other options or at least increase the field of, of, of options that we can consider. And that's more about what a choice is. So in other words, a choice is, is a bit like, um, you know, when you, let's say as a metaphor, you, you walk into a car dealership and the, and, the, and the proprietor comes to you and he basically says, well, you can have the red one or the blue one. And you look at the two cars and, and, and the, the dealership is going to try to convince you that it's either the red car or the blue car. Um, but but if, if you're a, a savvy consumer, you're going to realize, well, wait a minute, I don't have to buy either car. I can leave this store and go down the street to the, to the next dealership and I can get a green one or a blue one. And, you know, in, in effect, there's a, or, or just not buy a car at all. Maybe I want to go to school and, and, and or travel to Tahiti or something, right? So the, the thing is, is that to decide is to essentially cut away options, whereas to choose is to essentially create more and more options until the right choice becomes obvious. So there's a fundamentally creative aspect of choice that isn't there in decision. That's correct. Yeah, decision pretty much presumes that there is some sort of fixed context that presumes a third person perspective and um, pretty much assumes that there's no win-win choice possible. And so they don't even bother looking for it. Um, whereas, uh, you know, what we're suggesting here is, is that, uh, first of all, it may not be the case that, that you're dealing with a fixed context. Maybe, maybe there are situations that, um, you know, have led you into this particular circumstance, but then the question becomes, 
well, actually, maybe the choice we should have made was uh, this other thing, and how can we make choices in the future so that we don't end up boxed in like this in the future, right? So in a lot of ways, again, we're looking at the relationship between actuality and potentiality. How do I consistently make good choices to maximize the space of open potentialities in the future so that the good choices that, that are win-win for everybody are, are findable within that space? Um, and, and to some extent, you know, it, it becomes really important to hold the notion of where I am today isn't necessarily where I'm going to be tomorrow, and it isn't determined completely by where I was yesterday. Okay, so the way you're defining decision also implies an assumption of completeness of information that choice doesn't have. That's correct. We, we can't predict completely. I mean, you know, intelligence would suggest that we could, um, you know, take the information that we have and with good modeling techniques kind of come up with a way of, of, of determining what the future likely looks like. But that methodology is, 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 is incomplete. We're never going to have uh, perfect modeling of the universe. No model is ever going to be uh, essentially the be-all and end-all. So in effect, what we're really looking at is, is essentially a kind of adaptiveness. So we're, we're not just trying to create um, you know, models, but we're also trying to create capacities to adapt the model. So to, to look at uh, multiple models simultaneously to sort of selectively choose which of these models is effectively the most ap applicable in this situation and what tweaks might we need to make to the model so that it's even more well adapted to this particular circumstance. So we're not just talking a first order of intelligence of being able to use uh, a model. We're actually talking a second order of intelligence of choosing and modifying models to make them more adaptive to the circumstances at, at, at hand. And, you know, if we're really going to go uh, the next step, you know, the wisdom would be uh, to increase our capacity to adapt models and to learn new models and to effectively uh, become more capable of expanding the range of models that we can work with. Um, so, you know, in effect, it's, 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 it's basically suggesting that, that, that if we're really looking at, um, you know, a, a much more uh, effective choice-making process, it's going to be one that includes these other two levels of consideration. Now, Again, it's well beyond the scope of this podcast, the uh, incommensuration theorem. Uh, but there is a formalization that the knowledge we have in any scenario will never be fully complete, which says you want to always stay engaged in search rather than think that you've got complete information and just run optimization theory. Is there a way you can just kind of express the limit on completeness of information? Uh, well, those are fairly technical considerations, but um, so in effect, what can be done with um, classical computation theory would be, uh, you know, constrained by things like um, the incompleteness theorem, which is a, a kind of a special case of a more general way of thinking. But uh, effectively, it's to say that, um, you know, using any specific set of rules that we're, we're going to have some things that we can't figure out because uh, the, the world in which those rules apply don't apply to the world that we're interested in. Um, or that if we try to make a set of rules that are, that are applicable to, to a much wider range of, of worlds, that we have to introduce inconsistencies into the rules themselves. Uh, so from a philosophical perspective, what we're basically saying is, is that uh, either we can have complete validity and lose some degree of soundness, uh, or we can try to go for soundness, but we have to give up the notion of absolute validity. Um, so, in effect, uh, the more general statement of this is to say something about uh, symmetry and continuity themselves. It turns out that 
at a very fundamental level that there's a there's a kind of incommensuration that if I have perfected symmetry, that I cannot have any amount of continuity. I have to have perfected discontinuity. So perfected symmetry and perfected discontinuity become one possible way of looking. And then uh, if I decide that instead I'm going to look at the world through a perspective of perfected continuity, that I can't get symmetry either. I can't, I can't have perfected continuity and account for perfected symmetry. I can only have uh, perfected continuity and asymmetry. So of those four concepts of um, symmetry, continuity, asymmetry, and discontinuity, it turns out that like oil and water, that there are only two pairs that go together. And so in the same way that we could say, uh, I can't have perfect symmetry and perfect continuity simultaneously, that one or the other has to give a little bit at least, um, that I can't have perfected asymmetry and perfected discontinuity at the same time, although that's kind of obscure. Uh, most people haven't really thought about that. But um, in, in effect, it turns out that this, that this, this notion of, of symmetry and continuity um, insofar as it's derived or connected directly to the notion of comparison itself has some pretty profound things to say about um, various theories of physics that are in uh, common usage. So again, on UVSM, there is a, there is an article on the incommensuration theorem. If someone wants to go deeper there. So we'll come back to something that'll feel more grounded for people in terms of ethics and a theory of choice. When you're talking about good choice, increasing the possible and the actual, you're also talking about our choices relationship to future choices, the phase space of choice. And I know there is a way that you can kind of describe good choice in relationship to future choices. Well, there's a, there's, there's a lot of things that, that descend from this. So for instance, uh, one of the things that that, and, and in this conversation, you know, again, this, this idea hasn't been uh, supported yet. I mean, a lot of these ideas actually, I mean, there's, there's, there's structures that, that support these things. But uh, if we were to, to presume everything that we've said so far was true and then add yet another layer of, of, of derivation and then of, 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 of clear thinking and, 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 and you know, process to this, uh, we could get to the notion of uh, within the perspective of the first person, uh, that, that a win-win choice is always possible, right? That, that, you know, whether or not I happen to have the personal capability to identify the win-win choice uh, may be a separate matter. But on the other hand, uh, I should not give up on the notion that there is a win-win possibility. Um, you know, in effect, uh, to have this sort of um, proof of existence that basically says that there's always a win-win choice is, is essentially a, a really good thing because it, it gives us a a, a hope and a, and a and a and a thing of of uh, you know desirable outcome to strive for, right? So, for instance, if I have you know ten minutes of time, um, I'm not going to presume that there's no win-win choices and go directly to theory of trade-offs. I'm in effect going to say, well, can I uh, increase the option space? Um, so I might spend you know three quarters of my time increasing the option space to try to encompass the win-win choice, and then spend the rest of my time. Uh, searching for the closest thing I can get to uh, for that win-win choice. And that would be uh, overall a better approach than, say, um, presupposing that the options I had are the only ones and that, therefore, I have to do theory of trade-offs and spending all my time running optimization functions. Um, in, in some respects, there's a, 
you know, with, with doing optimization, there's, there's, there's really two questions. It's actually more complicated to do optimization um, in, in one sense. I mean, you know, search is, 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 is tricky in its own way, but in effect, uh, you know, I not only have to ask uh, what is the desirable outcome, but I have to really wonder whether or not the model I have as to what things are traded off, which against, in which way, what formulas I'm going to use to calculate the optimization uh, are in fact the correct formula. And so, um, it turns out that that's actually itself a search question, you know, of a possible space of all formulas that I could use to calculate this particular optimum. Um, am I using the right formula? So it's not just a question of what is the desirable outcome. It's also a question of uh, am I using the right optimization methodology? Um, so if, if, you know, just given that that's a, a reality of the process too, that there's a, there's a need for us to essentially say, well, since search is intrinsic to this particular process, let's give it a due consideration. And the motivator of that, of course, is the notion that uh, there is always a win-win choice. So therefore, it's worthwhile to spend time doing search. So when you say there's always a win-win choice, there's some kind of statement of that a good choice increases the phase space of all possible choices. Can you say more about that in terms of, and this comes to like the libertarian type of formalization of ethics with the non-aggression principle is that the limit of the freedom of my choice is if I would impinge upon your choice possibilities. So this concept is related here. Well, it's, it's related in an abstract way. I'm, I'm not going to try to go into uh, a political stance of, of, of suggesting that one kind of politic is, is better than another. Actually, I, I see a lot of value in, 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 in lots of different political ways of thinking. Um, and in effect, I, I'm sort of trying to get at the, the principles that allow us to, to see the good parts of all of these different perspectives. Uh, so I don't want to single one out uh, and say, this is the only good way of looking at it. But I, but I do want to say that when we... When we're looking at choice, um, it's, impossible, it's impossible to be in complete consideration of all possible outcomes, right? So for instance, you know, we, can, we can try to model and predict uh, what's going to happen, but uh, to some extent, the, the future is genuinely unknown. And so, um, you know, first of all, if we're, if, we're, if we're going to require that we have to have some absolute predictability to, to guarantee that a particular outcome is going to occur, uh, well, then we're either going to be uh, frozen and not able to make any choices at all, or we're going to, um, you know, just have to actually accept the fact that, that some of the choices that we make aren't going to turn out the way that we want them to. Um, and so, in effect, there's a, there's a kind of cooperation that's going on between the self and the world in making choice. The world participates in the outcome. Um, you know, I can, I can try to, to, to model what's going to happen, but the world has its own say. New factors will come in after I've, in a sense, you know, cast my vote or, or, or made my choice. And that, uh, to some extent, that the, the, the world effect's going to impinge upon my plans. Uh, so in the same way that my plans are impinging on the world and the world's impinging on my plans, there's now an energy exchange between myself and the world. And uh, to some extent, now we're back to continuity principles. Is that energy exchange something that is essentially making the world more alive, making me more alive? Is it possible for the, the plans that I'm making to have the flexibility built into them so that as the, the energy of the world starts coming in and shifting the outcome and so on and so forth, that I can, 
I can essentially adapt to that and, and, and continue to be engaged in the process of making choices as that uh, creative process uh, between self and world, in a sense, comes into being. So in effect, there's a, there's, there's a sense here of you know, wanting to um, keep some options open, right? To not have one's plans be too fixed um, and to depend upon too many things in making those plans. Uh, because if, 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 we, if we don't uh, give and build some adaptivity into those plans themselves, then we are for sure going to end up boxing ourselves in or, or getting trapped or, or, or caught in circumstances that we, we just don't know how to survive. So um, in a lot of ways, um, you know, we're not just looking at uh, predicting what the outcomes are, but we're also looking at you know, having some sense as to predicting what the potentialities are. Um, so you know, people doing risk assessment, for example, are looking at uh, the upside and the downside of various choices and factoring that into the choice-making process. And so in effect, if there are, are really extreme edges to, the, to, to a given choice, then there's a kind of calculus that needs to be done to essentially assess that and to essentially uh, provide for our capacity to continue to make choices in those contexts. So the concept of choice has this implicit sense of freedom to make choice and the concept of causation has some sense of limit that things are going to follow some kind of uh, law-based or causal dynamics Correct. can you can you describe the relationship between limitation and freedom and how it relates to choice well i i, I certainly can and I, I again you know this this is one of those things is probably going to sound a little bit like it's coming out of left field but uh, for every limitation there are two kinds of freedom and for every freedom, there are two kinds of limitation. So in effect, the, the concept of freedom and limitation uh, imply one another. There's actually two things we're saying. They imply one another. Every time I have one, I'm going to have the other. But it's not only the case that they imply one another. They, they imply one another in a multiple way. So, you know, if I, if, I, if I have one, I have the other, but I have the other in two different flavors. At two least different two, kinds, right? At least two, right? And so, in effect, you know, back when we were talking about symmetry and continuity, and I was saying I can't have a perfected symmetry and a perfected continuity at the same time. I have to, in a sense, have this this other concept. You know, if I have perfected symmetry, I'm going to have perfected discontinuity. And so, um, you know, in, in effect, there's this there's this implication that the discontinuity that we're talking about in that sense is actually not the same kind of discontinuity. It's, there's actually two kinds of discontinuity there. And if I, if I basically imply continuity, I'm going to end up with two kinds of asymmetry. Um, now, and again, these are, these are really abstract things, but the, but the point is, is that for instance, if we're talking about continuity, you know, one of those, um, those asymmetric kinds of kinds of things would be the, uh, the time of the world, right? And then and the other would be the subjective time, right? We have a objective context and a subjective context. The objective context being uh, what we think of as the, the elemental universe, the mechanical or the, uh, the substrate of stuff that, that, you know, atoms and molecules and all that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, when we talk about the self, we're talking about the subjective context of all the experiences I've had, all of the choices I've made, all of the things that I bring to the moment of choosing as a, as a sort of wisdom perspective. And so in effect, there's a, uh, there's a dual context for which the relationship between subjective and objective is, is you know, so if I say 
uh, finite relationship, there are two kinds of infinities, the infinity of the world and the, and the infinity of self. Um, and again, you know, these are, these are all abstractions that are, that are connected in, in various ways, but, but one of the net effects of, of, of the application of all these concepts and, and, and some others is that uh, limitation and freedom imply one another and that we just need to recognize that that's like just part of the way of how uh, life, the universe and everything just actually works. And that um, it's not just a single application, it's a, it's a plurality, that there's a, there's a fundamental plurality to this process that uh, where I say any one of those is singular, that the other has to be plural. So to ground this in a way people understand, can you give some examples of a freedom that implies limitations or a limitation that implies freedoms? Uh, sure. So um, let's say I wanted to become a, a concert pianist. So um, one of the limitations uh, that I would accept, you know, is, is, is that I would need to practice every day, right? You know, to get into Carnegie Call, you practice, right? So the idea here is, is that I'm now accepting a formalism of finger placement and having to re sight read score and to, you know, go through essentially the whole history of music to really understand how the phrasing is. There's a, there's a ton of stuff that a good musician would essentially need to uh, accept on as limitations um, to have uh, essentially two kinds of freedoms. One, uh, the freedom to uh, hopefully play at, uh, you know, some professional uh, level. And then, uh, also the freedom to to be able to vary the music that they're playing once they've learned the forms and they've gotten so that their fingers can really do a broad variety of things then they can start to introduce creativity into the process and and change the phrasing or, or if they're really capable um, maybe compose entirely new pieces of music and so um, in effect there's a there's a kind of thing of of to to have a, a craftsman's skill and, and to be able to, to um, you know, work in the marketplace or to uh, create new products and new, and new things that, that one has to, in a sense, learn the physics of that particular trade or to uh, take on the, um, the, the, the particular um, understanding of physical universe and the laws that, that, that unquote, we, we call the laws of nature. Um, and so, you know, we might say, okay, well, uh, let's let's flip that around. Well, it turns out that, that, that to be part of community that there are some uh, limitations there. So even though I might have uh, freedom of expression in the sense of being able to say things which uh, I hope are useful to other people, um, that to some extent I have to accept the limits of using the English language. And I have to accept the limits of I can only say so many words in any given number of minutes. And so in effect, there's a there's a choice that has to be made as to uh, which things out of all the possible things that I could say would be the ones that would be the most, um, you know, applicable to this given circumstance or have the highest uh, meaningfulness to the people that are receiving those. So there's a certain maturity that comes with understanding this relationship between freedom and limitation that says every freedom is going to have limitations that come with it. And so by choosing that freedom, I'm also choosing to accept and embrace the limitation. If I reject the limitation, I reject the freedom. That's correct. So in a sense, the, the choice itself has uh, as an outcome, a causal effect in the world, right? So we can't think about choice just by itself, nor can we think about causation just by itself, although uh, there are many people who have uh, spent an entire lifetime trying. But the point is, is that if we uh, look at uh, choice, one of the limitations, of course, is, you know, our, our own capacities to make good choices, but also uh, what causation we can bring about, right? What, what, what sort of things are, 
our, our actual uh, effects of our, our capacity. Um, but out of those uh, choices, those, those particular things becoming manifest, a whole spectrum of new choices becomes possible. And there's, there's a, um, you know, because of this, then we could have done that. Or if we had done this other thing, then these other possibilities. But those things have to happen as a, as a completed reality before those options open. <laughs> it's also very interesting in the contemplation that when new limitations emerge, the new freedoms that occur with them, and that oftentimes those can be missed. But if they aren't missed, the kind of design by constraints that emerges is oftentimes where some of the most fascinating stuff happens. Like there's a reason that Viktor Frankl and Nelson Mandela were forged in those experiences. Yeah, sometimes uh, difficult circumstances can create an individual's unique capacities. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, using a, another example, if I, if I have the, 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 the garden, but it's, it's just, you know, the, the, the untilled, you know, just, just the raw soil, no seeds. Um, on one hand, I have a kind of maximum of potentiality that I could, you know, I could plant anything. I haven't planted anything yet. Uh, but on the other hand, that's a real limitation because it means if I want to keep it that way, I can't actually plant anything. If I want to actually have vegetables, I've got to choose which ones and, 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 and to do those. So in effect, you know, the, the perfected potentiality means no actuality and the perfected actuality means no potentiality. We want this really nice dynamic dance where there's essentially a maximum of the degree that each of these work together to create a, a more wholesome outcome. Which is a relationship between being and becoming also a maximally beautiful life now that still has the potential to increase its beauty and possibility as time continues. Well, I, I would expand that uh, notion of, of being and becoming to also include the notion of doing and being. Um, if we spend all of our time doing, then, then you know, we, we, we never stop to smell the roses. We, we, we end up uh, living life without really ever uh, appreciating the gift of life. Um, you know, the, the fact of our being here and able to have a conversation and to, to breathe the air and to essentially perceive the universe with wonder is a, is a gift. And, you know, to some extent, um, if, we, if we spend all of our time in activity, uh, we, don't, we, we, we haven't engaged in the action of appreciating the gift. Um, we, we have, in effect, um, diminished uh, our, our, our experience and our expression of the value of the gift. Whereas, um, you know, if we, if we spend all of our time just being and not doing, then, then you know, there's, we might be in complete appreciation of the gift, which is really great for the individual, but doesn't do anything for the community. Uh, so there's, there's a natural balance between being and doing that needs to be uh, maintained in order for the health of both the community and the individual to be sustained. Uh, but that only accounts for the first order of thinking about this. Uh, you remember I, earlier I was, I was talking about, okay, well, learning which model to apply when uh, is sort of a second order phenomenon of, of, of basically saying, well, I'm not just going to routinely use the same model all the time, regardless of circumstance. I'm going to bring the right model to the right space. Um, and then, you know, if I, if I really want to go next level, I'm going to actually start thinking about, well, how do I create new models? What's the generator function? What are the principles that I use to develop new models when I don't have any yet? Right? Maybe I'm in a situation that's so completely different than anything I've experienced that I'm going to have to actually come up with new models de novo, essentially. Um, and, and in effect, there's a, 
there's a need here for us to, to, to really understand what makes a good model, what makes a good application of a model. How do we know when the model reality uh, connection is, is, is really fitting well? And this, of course, is leading us back to uh, the kind of epistemology that science has. But the, 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 the issue here is, is that the generator functions that generate good models are not going to be covered by the, uh, the models themselves, right? So, for instance, the uh, the scientific method is not going to be able to explain why the scientific method is the epistemological model to use. Uh, to some extent, we have to assume that. We have to assume things like time and space and matter and energy and, and all the phenomena of, of um, actual versus potential as concepts before the notion of, of, of you know, scientific knowledge even becomes relevant. And so, in effect, when we're, when we're basically talking about you know, things that the being doing becoming level, we're talking about things at a reality level, and the becoming part is essentially the learning process, the the, the meta level, uh, adapting new models, creating new perspectives, creating new possibilities. It's the search function uh, rather than the optimization function. And for the way, the place that the world is in today, um, you know, these these kinds of questions, uh, you know, really are relevant. And, and to some extent, we're we're wanting to make a a very fundamental shift in terms of what our uh, individual and collective behavior is, but in order for us to to rightly ground that, we, we need to understand these basic concepts uh, as an ordinating basis for us to be uh, effective about uh, developing the new kinds of models, new kinds of applications that uh, are, are definitely relevant. So given that this conversation is primarily about ethics and ethics is about a theory of choice making, can we actually define choice formally. We've talked about the relationship of choice and causation and kind of uh, hinted at there being a relationship between them, but you have a, a formal definition uh, or a choice must include. So choice itself is a, um, it's, it's kind of three parts. The, the first part is that uh, there needs to be a range of options to select from. Uh, the second part would be that there's an actual selection that one of these is chosen as being the one that is the is the thing. So after I've done potential generation, created a bunch of options, I've now uh, ranked them and decided which one I'm going to pick. The third thing that is needed for a choice is that the choice has to have a non-reversible outcome. Um, there's this thing called, uh, well, I, I use the language uh, uh, principle of identity. Uh, that which cannot be distinguished must be the same. So if I can't distinguish between having made a choice and not having made a choice, even in principle, um, then there's no valid basis for me to distinguish between the notion of choice and not choice. So in effect, uh, a choice has to have a, a, an irreversible consequence in the world because if I could reverse the consequence, erase the outcome, so to speak, then I can no longer distinguish between having the situation circumstance of having made the choice and erased it versus uh, just never having made the choice at all. So the notion of consequence turns out to be just as important to the notion of choice as the selection event does. So in effect, there's a, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, when we say uh, choice, we're, we're basically saying, you know, if I, if I don't have any options to pick from, then the notion of selection isn't meaningful either, right? So um, really what we're, what we're saying in this is that these three things together are the minimum necessary and sufficient concepts required to construct a notion of choice that, 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 that has any sense of meaningfulness uh, relative to the way that that term is commonly used. So in effect, um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at uh, potential, 
um, some sort of interaction and some sort of causation as an outcome. Um, it turns out that uh, you know when these things uh, essentially line up in, in, in a sort of uh, subjective perspective that we experience ourselves or we perceive ourselves or we uh, assert uh, from a subjective point of view that we have choice. Um, again, this gets into first-person, third-person perspective uh, to some extent, um, but that's 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 also another topic. Um, you know, so from a from an objective point of view, if we if we are looking at um, you know defining the notion of of um, uh, causation, we're basically saying that um, you know there's a from a from a subjective point of view, I perceive uh, a thing, and then I perceive another thing, and the the first thing seems to always be followed by the second thing, and that the regularity of the of the perception of these antecedents lead to these consequences and, and that that's a regularity of perception. That's more of what we think of when we think of as, ca as causation. Uh, we, we don't necessarily require an accounting for mechanism uh, when thinking about causation, but there is a, a perception of a consistency between, um, you know, prior states and, and, and posterior states. Uh, whereas with the, uh, the notion of perception, what I'm perceiving is a, is a subjective set of potentialities, right? I can't, um, you know, the possibility of my going to a movie tonight or reading a book or, or going to a restaurant or, or going to see my friends or, or all the different things I could do this evening. Um, there's, there's nothing I can point to that can be measured in the objective world today that would essentially be those possibilities because those possibilities are essentially just constructions in my head. There's no uh, objective statement of those things. But I perceive a correspondence between those possibilities, my selection have been in the correspondence from a subjective point of view. So as a result, I, I have this notion of choice, uh, the same way that if I perceive a correspondence between an outside phenomenon and some other outside phenomenon, then I perceive a, a thing that I would call causation. Um, and, and underlying both of these is, is the notion of change. And, and, and these three together itself is, a, is another concept that uh, we could get into if you like, but how's that okay. for now? So this next question I'm going to ask may be impossibly hard to do here, but let's see. So a lot of people who have paid attention to the conversation in philosophy, modern conversation in particular around choice, think about choice as, because you're mentioning the subjective sense of choice. And we've already mentioned earlier that uh, commonly the concept of objective and real are made synonyms, which then means subjective equals not real, but kind of almost by by axiom rather than anything else. Presupposition. Yeah. And so there's this concept that choice is an adaptive illusion that doesn't actually have reality, that uh, a conflation of causation and determinism being the same thing. And that because people describe first person experiences in a way that when their brain is hooked up to EEGs correlates with brain states to some degree, and the brain states seem caused by the physics of previous brain states, consciousness must be an epiphenomena and a causal. Now, and all that goes to say, when we're using a scientific framework, it's hard to even make sense of what choice could be other than an epiphenomena of lots of causation. So well, how, yeah. how do we construct the concept of choice as real? Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's going to take a bit. Um, 
so in, in, in effect, there's a, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of pieces to this. So, so one of the pieces you mentioned was that um, there, there is a distinction between the notion of causation and the notion of determinism. And so, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really key piece. So I, what, I, what I'm going to try to do is I'm just going to try to summarize, I guess, uh, sort of the, the perspective, the picture. And, and so, so from, from what I was asking just or, or speaking to just a minute ago, I was basically saying that the, that the notions of choice, change, and causation um, occur together, right? That, that I'll never have a notion of choice that doesn't imply a notion of causation. And that uh, neither of these concepts can really be considered without already having implied a notion of change. So um, in, in effect, uh, without having choice, change, and causation occur together, I can't understand any of them well. Um, and, and of course, you know, somebody's going to say, well, uh, if we just think about causation, um, then, you know, maybe we can model choice in terms of causation. Well, it turns out that doesn't actually work. And the, and, and the reasons for that are, are, are sort of, I think, what you're trying to get to. So um, one of the things that, that, that happens is, is that in, in, if, if you're using symmetry as a, as a fundamental perspective, so um, the, 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 the main thing is, is that because it's purely space-based, the concept of symmetry can be understood in terms of space without any reference to time. That the, the notion of time is effectively collapsed into space. If I presuppose the notion of symmetry as being the only valid, relevant concept to use, then um, what I'm going to inherit with that as 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 a foundational uh, starting point is essentially a reduction of time into space as a dimension of space. And this is, of course, where uh, Einstein went with it. Um, but also that uh, the notion of causation. And the notion of determinism must therefore be the, exactly the same notion. Uh, so, in effect, um, you know, we we could we could say from a third-person perspective that since there's uh, no difference between, um, you know, change and causation, that I can I can describe uh, essentially everything as a, as essentially a static, uh, you know, construct within some sort of space-time taken as a, as a whole. Uh, which is really just a, a four-dimensional space. And, um, you know, then I can continue to extend this third-person perspective, and I'm basically going to say, okay, that time is an illusion, and that um, basically because the structure of everything is fixed all the way down to essentially kind of an absolute perspective, that there's really no difference between causation and determinism, that those outcomes would naturally have occurred anyways, and that we could have described those perfectly mathematically. We might not just happen to know what those mathematical descriptions are today. And, that, and that's kind of where the conversation has, has gone and, and, and a lot of where the hard problem currently comes to. On the other hand, if we were to say, well, first of all, let's not take the notion of symmetry as a, uh, the only fundamental premise right? That, that if we were to say, okay, um, if, if we're going to use the notion of measurement as essentially being the, the primary basis of science, if we're going to say um, that, 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 that the scientific method is an epistemic process, then in effect, what, what is, what is then, then required is, is that we say, okay, well, uh, measurement is a, is, a, is a kind of interaction. It's a kind of comparison. And the notion of comparison isn't presupposing just symmetry. It's also presupposing a kind of continuity, right? Otherwise, the, the notion of signal passing from, from sender to receiver 
you know, there has to be some continuity principle in that in order to, to even have a notion of information in the first place. So um, we might be able to create models out of these datum, out of these signals, these comparisons, and say that these models can account for the symmetric aspects of it, but I could just as easily say, well, let's take a look at the mirror image of that, or let's take a look at the other orthogonal perspective and say, okay, let's try to understand things in terms of their continuity. And so in effect, I'm going to, um, first of all, look at choice change and causation as being uh, you know, essentially the, the kind of field of knowledge that is created out of that interaction. So for instance, I might not know uh, why when I hit send on, a, on an email program that the result is, is that you see this message on your computer. Um, but I do know that there's a relationship between my typing an email and hitting send and you're seeing that message. And I don't need to know the details of that. I do need to know that there's a discrete relationship between this happening and that other thing happening. So in effect, if we, if we, if we really are, are being very careful with our, our language and our assumptions and our, and, our, and our perspectives, we notice that scientific knowledge is not actually knowledge of determinism, it is actually knowledge of causation. And that there's a slight and subtle difference between the concept of causation and the concept of determinism. That, that, that those two concepts aren't exactly the same concept, they have uh, been connotated as if they were the same, but, the, but they're not. Uh, determinism is to say that it is atemporal, that there is essentially an um, absolute microscopic uh, determination of every possible uh, detail all the way down to the scale of absolutely zero, right? And, um, you know, that there's no randomness, that essentially uh, that, that, that everything about the structure is defined. Now, I might not know what that structure is. I might not be able to have, you know, essentially the, the number measured all the way out to uh, infinite decimal points to the right. But uh, at least the notion of determinism asserts that that could be done. Whereas when I look at the knowledge that science actually has, what we were really looking at is causal knowledge. There's a certain point at which, you know, we might be able to verify this particular theory out to, say, eight decimal points. But beyond that, we have no idea, right? Maybe the theory isn't true at uh, the 12th decimal point or the 15th decimal point. And so um, in, in that particular respect, if we put and we say, okay, the concepts of choice, change, and causation, well, change is in the middle. We put causation, say, on the right side, and determinism would be all the way to the edge of the number line, uh, you know, at, at the end of the possible continuum, uh, just to the right of where we would put causation. Well, let's look at the other side. At the other side, we basically say, well, if we're going to go in the opposite direction away from causation, somewhere along there, we're going to hit choice. And if I, if I take a, a, a little bit of a step past choice, the next thing I would have would be uh, this notion of uh, absolute randomness or pure chaos or, or complete indeterminism. Right? So now I have this, this, this sort of continuum that has on the line um, indeterminism, right, randomness or, or, or hard, hard um, chaos, choice right next to that, right, because I can't predict choice. Like if I, if I try to predict the next thing that you're going to say, well, I might get close, but if I do information compression, I try to factor out uh, everything that I know about you and so on and so forth, there's still going to be some residual of things that I cannot predict on the basis of everything that I know about the past. 
So in a sense, there's a, there's a certain degree to which the future is unpredictable. There's a certain randomness. There's a, a the, the uh, information compression process, you know, if we're talking like a, a zip uh, algorithm, you know, using some sort of uh, pattern detection, uh, Huffman encoding and all that kind of thing that, you know, there's, there's a residual amount of, of, of information that is just unpredictable. Right. And so, um, that's where the choices live, right? So essentially there's a real close relationship between the notion of randomness, the notion of choice, and then going farther down towards the middle of this continuum, I have change, things are shifting. And then to the right of that, I have causation and then determinism. So then we can say, okay, given that this construction based upon the notion of comparison, fundamentally assuming comparison, we now get to use the notion of comparison in the new way. We can say, to the degree that we are distinguishing between first-person perspective and third-person perspective is the same degree that we are distinguishing between causation and determinism is therefore the degree to which we're distinguishing between hard random and choice. And those three things co-occur. So in effect, and this is, this is where it gets, uh, this isn't speculative, but this is where things get really primal. That, 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 that in the overall perspective, that the notion of consciousness, temporality, and randomness are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable concepts. They must occur together. And that... It's only from that perspective that can we can really understand what quantum mechanics is actually telling us. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense of, of, you know, to the degree that we are saying, hey, signal process is happening. We're, we're, we're doing first-person experiments in time to try to determine what the structure of the universe outside of ourselves is actually like. Well, I'm basically using a first-person perspective to establish third-person models. But if I'm going to be saying that the third-person models, to some extent, are justified or grounded in the first-person perspective, then to some extent, I have to account for the fact that those two aren't exactly the same. I can try to take the third-person model and try to come back and wrap it around to try to describe the first-person perspective. But now we're getting a sort of a, uh, a kind of loop process, and I need to account for that in some meta-framework. But that meta-framework is basically saying, well, to the degree that the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective are different, and we haven't yet closed the gap, then the degree to there is a difference between uh, causation, which is what scientific knowledge actually is, and determinism, which is what mathematics is, right? The, the tools that we use to, to do all of this stuff is also the degree to which there is a, 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 a subtle distinction between uh, the notion of hard random and the notion of choice. Hard random is regarded as being meaningless, whereas choice is being regarded as meaningful. So from a first-person perspective, the choices I make matter to me. I won't make choices that I don't care about because otherwise it's not really a choice to me. From the outside world, my choices must seem random. In other words, while you as a friend who knows me and stuff like that could predict what I'm likely to say, 
I would hazard a guess that none of us can predict for any other of us exactly what they will say, down to intonations and phrasing and the very slight pauses that indicate emphasis and all the rest of that. There's always going to be some degree of the unknown in the universe. Otherwise, we could predict com with complete accuracy and uh, you know, causation and determinism would be the same, but obviously the mathematics only works so far. The relationship between self and world is actually finite. There's a certain amount of bandwidth. There's not infinite bandwidth. So to the degree that we acknowledge the fact of there being finite bandwidth, we must acknowledge the fact of there being a difference between um, determinism, the mathematical uh, platonic, platonic uh, perfected perspective, and this more, um, you know, kind of Aristotle perspective. And then on the other side, we basically have to say, well, the notion of meaningfulness itself is now uh, resting on the fact of there being this distinction that is only viewable and only evident from a subjective point of view. So, um, you know, th th that's a whole constellation of concepts. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in that particular thing. But if, but if, you, if you work through it carefully, if you really think carefully about, about this particular process, you'll notice that it cannot be any other way. So um, in that particular sense, what, what we've done with this particular construction is, is that we've effectively rescued the notion of choice from the, um, the, the sort of clutches of a just symmetry perspective. Because a symmetry perspective would force either perfected determinism or perfected randomness and the notion of excluded middle, that it can either be one or the other um, Either you allow for random things to happen, at which point patterns don't matter, or it's all about pattern and there's no randomness at all anywhere. Um, whereas if you, if you take a, uh, a first-person point of view, you don't have to think about hard randomness or hard determinism. You can essentially uh, be in that middle space that is neither perfected chaos nor perfected uh, form. Um, you know, order and disorder or, or uh, reason and irrational or... Um, you know, there are, there are things which are, uh, you know, going back to the sort of ethics perspective that are good in the basis of being irrational. Love is irrational. If, we, if, we, if, if we're with a partner and we say, I love you because, and you fill in anything for the because, then that person's going to be in doubt that if that because ever changes, that you're not... In, in love, you're not supporting them. You're not in service or, 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 or helping them to, to manifest their dreams or to do the, the basis of the notion of love is that which enables choice as an actual practice. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, these concepts are kind of abstract, but they, but they actually have really good grounding in the sense that, um, first of all, they touch to, 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 to absolutely primal things having to do with um, life, the universe, and everything. But but also that they touch back to, to very, very intimate details of our relationships with one another and the kinds of communication that we have and the kinds of assumptions we can or can't make in, in those contexts. So in effect, you know, I, I, I would say that if we're, if we're going to take that life is meaningful, we have to ground the notion of meaningfulness. And the way that we do that is by, by showing that the notion of meaningfulness is essentially contingent on a first-person perspective and not on a third-person perspective. So all of a sudden, we can say things like, um, 
you know, people normally say it's only meaningful if it endures for all of future time. You know, I build a statue and that statue's there a hundred years from now. So my life had meaning because my ancestors, you know, three generations from now are going to look back and be able to say in some history book, oh, that guy did a great thing. Whereas, you know, in, in, in actual fact, you know, at least for, for my own part, it's not so much about what those future states are going to be. It's, am I appreciating the gift of life right near, right, right now, in this moment, in my relationships with my friends and family and familiars? And so am I, am I honoring and, and, and properly valuing the extraordinary gift that is, that is life on earth? And, and that just gives us a completely different sense of what meaningfulness is and the way in which we enact choices around it. Okay. So there's something like a hundred things that I would like to double click on that you just said. If, if we follow, there is a, formal construction of meaningfulness that debases the constructions of any version of nihilism. There is showing the philosophic errors of both physicalism and idealism. There's a relationship between the complex and the complicated to the causal and determinism type structures. There is a formalization of how the concept of time works in relationship to these lots of things. I think the place that I'll go next is you said love is that which enables choice. Can you, can you explain or expand on that statement? So in, in a lot of literature, people talk about what love feels like. And that's nice for the person that's feeling it. But I think that for a lot of us, we're really talking about how do we do love? How do we enact love? How do we recognize when someone else is loving us or that we're actually being loving to them? So, you know, in one sense, I, I could sort of say that this is, this is more about the practice of love than it is about the feeling of love, love as an action. And so, First of all, when we're, when we're saying love is that which enables choice, what I'm basically saying is that I'm enabling the choice of the other, right? So if I, if I say to, to my partner, I love you, first of all, there's the specificity of the you, right? Who specifically am I saying that to? And, 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 and you know, if, 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 the, if the person that I'm saying that to does, doesn't believe that I'm saying it to them, they're, you know, it's the generic you, I, I love everybody, then, then to some extent, they're not going to feel particularly enabled by that. They're not going to receive anything that is essentially meaningful to them personally because it wasn't intended for them personally. Whereas if I'm saying, I love you, and I'm basically looking right at them, I'm making it very, very clear that, 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 that this is a specific statement, is a kind of uh, declaration on my part that I see them, that I know them, that I, that I that I'm in a sense interested in enabling their choices specifically, right? I'm not trying to make choices for them. I'm trying to assist them in their capacity to make better choices in their lives. And, you know, so in a sense, we could, we could, we could talk about self and we could say, 
self is the product of the sums of all of the choices I have made and all the choices I could make. So who I am today is all of the experiences, all of the choices that led to those experiences that I, that I know and remember and have, have, have made me who I am in this moment. But just talking about my experiences and who I'm in this moment, if I, if I had no capacity to choose, no capacity to speak or to be or to, to, to essentially express, then there really isn't any self-consciousness there, right? Because essentially the loop that would be the self-awareness would have halted. So some expression must be possible in order for self to be a concept. And so in effect, I have to be able to describe self, not just in terms of the past, but also in terms of the future, what skills I have what things I could say, what things I could make, right? If I have gone through the discipline of learning how to play the piano, then part of who I am is all of the things that I would hope to write in the future, all the music I have yet to make because of those skills. So in the sense that the skills are embodied in me, it's because the potentiality of that is a real, real thing. So when I'm basically saying that I love you to, to my partner, what I'm essentially saying to them is, number one, I'm enabling your choices to become the most healthy, affirmed, complete realization of who you are as you could possibly be. So in other words, not only is it the case that I'm not trying to make the choices for them, I'm trying to assist them in realizing their dreams to, in a sense, uh, develop themselves and their relationship to the world and back to me in, in as full a way as they possibly can. I'm not doing it because they're in relationship to me. I'm doing it in, in relation to that that being that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm essentially affirming is becoming more alive in their relationship to themselves, their aliveness in the world, in, in, in every aspect. So if they, if they happen to be introverted, then to you know, enable them to become more realized as an introvert. If they happen to be extroverted, then more realized as an extrovert. And so in effect, there's a, there's a sense here of, they're becoming more vivid as a being. And so in a sense, now I can, I can experience the aliveness of that other person, that they are the more themselves. And if I do this well, then, and of course I appreciate them even more and the gift and the miracle of who they are. And, and that becomes uh, yet a further basis for strength and love. Um, they make good choices and I try to help them make even better choices. Um, but the choices, the, the notion of goodness is in a sense first reference in terms of their own relations. So that's, that's, that's one key, key piece. Another aspect that is uh, kind, of, kind of related to this is that um, in the sense that, that we look at, uh, you know, children, right? So, so and, and this is just an example. It's just showing uh, another way of, of, of understanding this. So when a child is born, they are helpless. They can't make any choices themselves. And uh, sometime, uh, maybe they're 18 or 21 or who knows these days, but they move out and they essentially establish their own independent lives. And um, if things uh, you know, go as they, they naturally would, uh, at some point we will pass and our children will live on beyond us. So clearly at some point, there is a transition from can't make any choices on their own to after we're gone, having to make all of their choices on their own, right? 
or at least in, in, in some context that they established, not something that we've created. And so in effect, there's a, there's, a, there's a degree to which if we are going to serve our children well, we are wanting them to make wise choices. We are wanting to create within them uh, the capacity to choose in such a way that they both actualize, right, become the most themselves that they can possibly be, and create the greatest health in the world that they can by being themselves in right relationship with the world, that the relationship is a good one, and the world becomes manifest and, 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 and actualized. The self becomes manifest and actualized. So we have world actualization. We have self-actualization. And um, that, that there's, a, you know, as I was saying earlier about, you know, I can use the model and apply it, but I can also learn which models to use, and then I can learn how to learn which models to create and to adapt and to, to, to shift to, to, to be meta order evolving. So in effect of, of, you know, how we raise our children, we're really looking at enabling them in all of these ways. And so in effect, because it's, it's clearly the case that we will not always be able to make their choices for them uh, as they are when they're a baby, that at some point, if we love our children well, we are effectively teaching them to be wise beings in the context of their own lives. So it's not just an abstract concept to say, you know, I love you at the sense of peerage within a partnership. It's also the sense of saying ultimately what it means to be a family. And you know, this, this kind of concept can be extended. You know, I, I said earlier that I wasn't taking a political stance and I'm still not, but I, I can make a, a very general observation. I can say, you know, if we're looking at, say, the relationship between a government and its people, that the function of a government is to protect the land and the people. That's something that, the, that, that our forefathers knew and, 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 and really tried to encode the best way that they could, right? And that, in effect, if, if we're going to take up the mantle of, of that, we have to protect the land as the capacity to have future generations. Because if the land is, is sterile and poisoned and, and toxic, then, then you're not going to be able to grow food on that. You're not going to be able to have people live there. So you have to protect the land and you have to protect the people. It's, it's like the, the people are the seed of the next generation as well, right? And if you, if you don't spend some time paying attention to the well-being of the future potential states of both of those things, um, then uh, the choice to make choices for that civilization goes away. So, in effect, the, 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 the necessity here is, is for us to go beyond just protecting the land and the people. The choices that we have now are effectively to go into the space of saying, how can the relationships that we have, how can the, the principles that we apply in the nature of choice, not just the rules that we make and the kind of causation that we try to put into effect, which can be manipulated in games and and, and, and you know, transformed into things for private benefit. But how can we basically really get down to the essence and stop, you know, not just go from, from how questions, but the what questions. What is the essence of what we're trying to do? We're looking at the land and the people thriving. We want to make the kinds of choices that actualize thriving, not just um, boundary creates protection. Because this is, again, going back to this notion of decide, to cut away, to, to prevent from happening. Well, I, 
I can only go so far as preventing bad things from happening. And if I, if I somehow am successful at perfectly preventing bad things from happening, the relationship between limitation and freedom now all of a sudden starts showing up. I've uh, prevented bad things from happening, but now I don't have any freedoms, right? So there's a, there's a sense here of needing to engage in a way that essentially allows for both actualization and potentialization. We want to have some degree of protecting the land and the people and some degree of helping the land and the people to thrive. And so, you know, to the degree that we really get down to the, the, to the, to the ground of that and we say, okay, ultimately this is what it's about. And if we have any illusions that this is what it's about, then we really need to get clear about this first. Once we have clarity about that, once we know the answer to the what question, then we can start to think about answers to the how question. So, you know, in effect, there's a, there's a kind of action bias. People go directly to, well, you know, how are we going to make X happen? And they, they, they don't spend enough time paying attention to, are we asking the right questions? Are we genuinely clear about the values and the meaning and the, and the basis of our choices? So if I'm going to be appropriately loving to a child, for example, I have to at some point acknowledge that really what I'm doing is I'm enabling them to choose and this is ultimately what the meaning of love is. And if I'm in a relationship and I notice that the other partner is essentially uh, spending all their time trying to turn me into somebody else, then they're not loving me, they're loving whatever that something else is. And so in effect, I might feel that I'm not loved someone else is loved or something else is loved. And therefore the relationship doesn't feel fulfilling, doesn't feel affirmed. So in one sense, we can use the, the notion of a litmus, the notion of love is that which enables choice as a litmus test for um, the kinds of ethical thinking, the kinds of principled thinking that we're talking about. And we can consider that uh, in interpersonal relationships, in family relationships, and in um, relationships between a community and, and a person. You know, if we, if we think of, you know, government as being essentially the social contract writ large, what is the relationship between the individual and the community? And how do we develop things that affirm the, the holistic basis of both of these? It doesn't have to be a trade-off of one versus the other. Um, and so, in effect, we need to ask deeper, more, more clear questions about the, the fundamental what of what's actually life and meaning and, and, the, and the, um, the basis upon which we we make good choices, the principles. So there's a way that you're connecting the idea of a good choice and the idea of a loving choice. Correct. A loving choice is one that essentially is affirming the actuality of the person as they are in this moment and also affirming the totality of the potentiality. And, and, and you know, I can't know all of the potential. That, that a person has. A potential is an invisible thing. I can point to a thing that's actual, but I can't point to a thing, not with my finger at least, um, as to the potential. So in this particular sense, we're talking about faith as vision wide open. I, th I think you might need to unpack that one a little bit. So in a, in a, in a lot of ways, I can, I can see the actual but, but in order to, to, to perceive the potential, I have to use the eyes of my imagination. I have to, I have to in a sense, uh, intuit the feeling of the possible future states. And so if I, if I spend all of my time just looking at the world with my eyes, 
then all I'm going to see is what is. I'm not going to see what could be or become. And so um, in the choice-making process, we want to have vision as much as we have seeing. Seeing addresses the actual, vision addresses the potential. And only in the acknowledgement of both the future and the past in the present can we rightly be in relationship in the present. So this is obviously addressing the is-ought issue. And you're describing, you actually are defining self in relationship to the concept of choice. Choice is more fundamental. The yes. sum of all the previous choices and the product of that with all future possible choices. So, so in effect, it is more correct to say, you know, we, we usually think of, of self as basically saying self has choice. And that's just been a kind of canonical way of thinking about the notion of self. I have a self, the self makes choices. But in actual principle, an actual ground, it is more correct to say <laughs> that choice has self. The choice is actually the more primary concept. In the same way that, that we could say causation is the more primary concept for reality in the in a external sense, that choice is more fundamental than self as a reality in the subjective sense. So that's Another way of saying that choice and causation, choice, change, and causation are bound to the relationship between self and world, as opposed to assuming that choice happens inside of a self out of relationship with the world. That's correct. Yeah. The notion of choice, change, and causation are bound to the notion of real in the relationship between the subjective and the objective, in the relationship between the first person and the third person. It is not the case that choice, change, and causation can be bound just to the world or to the self, that they live in the relationship between, and that the relationship between is essentially its own ontological class outside of both the subjective and the objective. The relationship is neither one nor the other completely. So coming back to the concept of love is that which enables choice and the example you gave of parenting where good parenting is seeking to enable uh, more and more capacity at choice in the other, but then not just in parenting in any relationship where there is love, that's the basis of choice. There's a couple concepts that seem like they're quite important to make a distinction on in the past, the conflation of morals and ethics would often be, okay, so I want to teach my children the right morals so that they can always make decisions by rules, which is assuming that this current rule set is the best and only rule set and that they will stay within the context that I know. And so this is one thing to go beyond that and say, I don't want to teach them rules. I want to teach them the principles that gave rise to those rules so that they can actually make choices beyond the choices I could inform them of. Well, there's a couple of points. So there's that point specifically, but but this is actually an example of a, of a larger class of things. Obviously, you're not going to be able to take a baby and enable them to choose uh, to drive a car, for example. They, first of all, aren't physically large enough to reach the pedals and the steering wheel. But just the capacity to make good choices isn't something that arrives all at once. 
there's a there's a gradualness to it, right? So this is where we're coming back to the principle of continuity. If I try to teach them everything too quickly, they're not going to be able to take it all in. Whereas if I teach them too slowly, like if I'm not teaching them how to drive until they're say 50, you know, then it, then it's going to be too late, right? They 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 need that skill when they're in their 20s, presumably. So the the point here is is that in the educational process, regardless of whether we're talking about a traditional one or some sort of uh, new, new, new thing, that we are uh, wanting very specifically to know where the child's choice capacity is at and to be discerning about what is the next step, right? So in effect, if we're going to be a guide to the, the choices of the next generation, we need to, in a sense, reflect back on our own experiences to essentially learn how to be the best guide for their choices and experiences as those choices become relevant, as, as the capacities to make those choices become relevant. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of wise parenting sort of aspect to this. And so when we, when we start thinking about things like uh, tradition and such like that, then again, we're, we're getting back to, um, is the tradition in a sense uh, adaptive to the current circumstances. So maybe those traditions are reflective of deep principles. And, you know, if, if, the, if the outside world is changing very, very slowly, then those principles uh, apply the same way that they would have previously. And, and so we can use the rules as a kind of shortcut, a kind of heuristic um, to essentially make the educational process simpler and to be able to focus on other things. So if I didn't have any habits, for example, um, if I had to pay attention to every sort of a neural impulse in my legs in order to walk, then I would be so distracted I wouldn't be able to look at where I was going. Um, so in effect, to, to have adapted the habit of, you know, the kinds of sequence of muscle memory that, that essentially allows us to walk down the street, I can look up and I can pay attention to where the cars are, I can pay attention to, you know, where I need to go and more abstract matters of why that might be meaningful. So in effect, there's, a, there's, there's an acknowledgement here that, um, you know, rule systems as a kind of uh, heuristic process can be adaptive in circumstances where those rules are still applicable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if we are living in a rapidly changing environment where the, the circumstances of our communication processes and the, and the kinds of things that are, that are happening on a day-to-day -day level and the kind of environments that we're involved in are very, very different than that of our forefathers, and what we need to do is, is we need to get to a place of saying, okay, these rules are an expression of a deeper set of principles. What are those principles and how do those principles essentially inform the choices that we make today? And can we translate that into a set of modified rules that are more adaptive to the current circumstances? So you don't have to throw the tradition out completely, but now you're using the tradition as a kind of guide as to how to make the new tradition in the right way. And so, I think that to some extent that if we, if we don't notice that, um, you know, this goes back to what you mentioned earlier about the uh, complicated versus complex. Uh, complicated is kind of an outside in, um, you know, we're going to set this up from a sort of top-down perspective, whereas the reality that we live in, the natural world and the, you know, interactions between people and, and cultures and so on, has more of a complex character. There's a dynamicism to it that, that no outside set of rules can completely encompass. There will always be things that happen that you couldn't have predicted or expected in advance. So in acknowledgement of that, what we're basically suggesting is, is that there is a, uh, a need to be able to 
go back from the rules down to the principles and understand uh, what those rules mean in the deepest possible sense relevant to this current situation. And if, if, we, if we do that well, then, then, then we, we effectively learn something that's important. We learn something that's profoundly meaningful and, and, and genuinely beautiful. And at the same time, um, we, we, we're not stuck, uh, you know, mis, misperceiving and, and misresponding to the, to the current context. We are, we're effectively accounting for the future just as much as we are accounting for the past. So you actually just described a specific process for coming to a kind of dialectical synthesis between the traditional impulse and the progressive impulse. Yes. The traditional impulse says, hey, if these traditions lasted, there was something adaptive about them that had them last. Don't throw them out in a hurry because you might not understand them fully. So let's go back to the good old ways. The progressive impulse says, hey, there's fundamentally new stuff happening that we didn't encounter. We need new stuff. But we want to make sure that we understood the old stuff well and that the new stuff is kind of including and transcending. And the way that you brought that about is understand the principles that gave rise to the rules and the tradition and then see how those principles apply to possibly new rules, but the same principles, the same generator function in new contexts. Yeah, I would be a little hesitant to apply the labels progressive and conservative or, you know, uh, traditional versus non-traditional or any of those kinds of things. Because as soon as we, we pull in those kinds of labels, we're going to inherit all of the connotative uh, baggage and political uh, machinations that have been uh, occurring with those terms historically. Uh, really, what we're trying to get to here is, is just what is right relationship really? Right? Are, are we in right relationship with our partners, with our children, with our families, with, you know, the community? Are we in right relationship to the earth? Are we, are we in right relationship to our own bodies, to our own psyche? And, you know, in effect, to, to, to really be able to understand how to navigate in that particular space, we need three things. We need a, a, a compass, right? Some sort of ordinating basis as to, um, you know, what does it mean to make a good choice? This is what we're talking about when we say ethics. And then we need a, a map of some sort, you know, what is... What is the geometry of, of the space that we're in? What are we, what are we really encountering here? Um, and then we need a knowledge of current position. If we don't know where we are, whether or not that map is essentially describing the circumstances we're currently in, then we still can't navigate, right? We, we, we need all three. If, there's a, if we're trying to traverse some landscape and there's a cliff right in front of us or a mountain or a wall or something and the map shows that, we know our current position, we know which way the orientation is, we can probably navigate around. Or we would say, hey, this is a circumstance we're tunneling through is a good idea. Because in effect, we are essentially trying to have a, uh, a, a sense of, first of all, maximizing the actuality and the potentiality. If I, if I don't acknowledge the actuality of the present circumstance, if I'm not confused, about the present and the past. I recognize the, percent, the present. I accept it completely um, as it is without trying to um, you know, be in deceit with myself as to what is actually the case. So I can use the past to perceive the present, but I have to be able to perceive the present as itself genuinely. That's the actual part of it. Then the potential part of it is, uh, can I be sensible? Can I make 
good choices? Can I, can I uh, essentially get to where I want to be? Do I have a sense of where that is in, in relation to where I am now? And so in effect, this, this is why the map is important. So, you know, if we are basically saying, hey, we want to get to this particular location, you know, first of all, we're, we're looking at the potential space of all possible routes that will get us there. So there's not just a, a sense of where it is, but also a sense of what are the potential directions we could go to to get to that particular position. So if I basically have the left half of my body try to go one way and the right half of my body try to go another way, that's not going to be a very effective choice. I'm going to be in, in conflict. So the first part of this is, is, is that if we're going to be um, essentially in right relationship to the future and, and to act and to, and to uh, move with um, you know, quickly and decisively, so to speak, I'm going to need to have a unity of self. I'm going to need to create a, a sort of co comprehensiveness that all of these paths have been evaluated in some sort of holistic way. There's a kind of internal council that has, you know, hashed it all out, discussed it, made sense of the situation and arrived at, okay, all of us is going to commit to this path and we're going to go down this and we're going to be aware and sensible by paying attention to the to the circumstances we encounter along the way so that we can adjust our path if it turns out to be necessary. So rather than making a choice and treating it as a done and forever completed deal, we're looking at committing to the choice, but then remaining flexible in the process of making that choice so that we can continually update and refine and be discerning about the best ways to, to, to move from, from where we are to where we want to be. We can't do that by accounting for just the actuality. We have to account for the potentiality. You also just specified a really important process that is fundamental to good choice making, which is noticing where there are internal conflicts and having basically a conversation between the parts that are in conflict until they come into a kind of unity. So there's a wholeness of self in the choice making. Yes. So in effect, I'm, I'm saying that from a symmetry point of view, I want to be able to think through a particular choice with clarity. But from a continuity point of view, I want to be able to feel through a choice with clarity. If it doesn't feel good, something's probably wrong. Mm -hmm. So I want to understand why that discomfort exists. If I can't think through it and it doesn't make logical sense, something's probably wrong. I want to figure out where the error in my thinking is. So either way, we want to uh, sort of generalize to the idea of Good choices are things which I can both clearly think about and clearly feel through and both come out good. So you're, you're creating some kind of mapping between continuity and feeling and thinking and symmetry. That's correct. Can you unpack why feeling is the language of continuity? So um, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier with joy and pain. So pain would be where there is a cessation of feeling, right? I, I, I feel the pain, but I can't feel anything beyond it, right? So if I have a, a cut on my arm and it interrupts uh, my skin or maybe my nervous system, I'll feel the cut, but I might not feel the tip of my finger anymore. The tip of my finger may be numb because I've severed the, the neural signals that essentially allow information to pass from the remote location. So, you know, in effect, there's a, there's a blockage in the continuity of self, right? There's, a, there's an opacity that has been created. So 
when I say to be able to feel through, what I'm basically saying is, is that I'm operating as a whole and unified being, i.e. that there's a continuity that connects every part of myself to every other part of myself so that I can essentially treat it as a whole rather than having uh, some isolated islands of, like in this case, my finger that I can't sense anymore. Um, no longer can be sure that I can either have it be a vehicle of perception or expression. Right? If I can't have the nervous system receive the signal, it's probably a good bet that I wouldn't be able to move the finger either. Um, that's not universally true, but it's, 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 it's probable that the same uh, pathways that the nervous signal is, 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 is passing is, is both going to be used for perception and expression. So in that particular sense, when we're talking about uh, thinking, we're talking about forms of thought, abstractions, and so on and so forth. Whereas we're talking about feeling, we're talking about embodied connectedness. So um, that's, that's kind of why those, those constructions uh, go that way. I mean, the, the form, like I said, goes back to the notion of logic, uh, premises and conclusions, and the tools that we use to get from premises to conclusions. Um, all of those are kind of abstractions. They're virtual things. But again, Validity by itself is not enough. We also need soundness. And soundness basically means that there needs to be an embodied aspect to it. That's where the continuity comes in. So you're basically saying that a full epistemology involves a navigation of feeling as much as of thinking. Yeah, the intuition tells us what we should work on, and then the intellect helps us to work on it rightly. I mean, you know, if you, if you don't have any imagination, you're not going to come up with very many creative ideas. Um, you know, in effect, there's a there's a, there's a generative capacity to ask questions and to, and to look for new things. And then there's an optimization capacity, which has to do with, uh, you know, refining perspectives and, and essentially testing ideas as being correct. Okay. So recognizing time and the need to wrap up, I want to come to a couple key things of ethics that we haven't uh, discussed fully yet. So when you talk about a loving choice being that which enables choice in the other, So then, of course, any attempt to compel someone to do something in particular, which is trying to collapse their choice to some way that we can causally influence it, would not be a loving choice, would be some violation of asymmetry ethics. I wouldn't want someone trying to manipulate my behavior, so I'm doing something I wouldn't want to trade positions with. Yeah, symmetry and continuity both. Yeah, definitely. So then good choice is self in relationship with reality includes all the selves I would interact with is loving choice in relationship with all selves. So I'm seeking to make choice that both increases my future choice possibility, but also the future choice possibility of anyone affected by my choice. That's correct. Can you foreshadow at all what a world with that choice making basis would be like? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, a lot of people would try to go in a, in a sort of uh, utopian uh, way of thinking about this. Um, and, and, and I suppose that's a fair uh, way of thinking about it. But on the other hand, I tend to think that uh, if we go down too far as sort of a utopian perspective, then we're very likely to create a dystopian uh, outcome. Uh, so in effect, there's a, there's a need to uh, really identify, you know, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for long-term conscious, sustainable evolution? And, you know, again, these aren't, these aren't lightly 
these aren't lightly said things. These are these are actually really uh, specific things. Um, you know, if, if if you just have sustainability but you do not have a evolution, uh, then it's sterile and it will eventually die as the as the world changes, as as the universe changes. Um, if you have evolution without sustainability, you have lots and lots of change, but it obviously doesn't persist because sustainability has to do with persistence. Uh, so lots of change, and then it all goes away because it didn't persist. And if we don't have consciousness, then in effect, uh, it could be very well asked, well, what's the point? You know, why bother? You know, what is, what is the ultimate meaning of all of this? And so in effect, you know, we're, we're, we're connecting the notion of meaningfulness back to life, back to essentially the, uh, the totality of wanting to have all experiences and to be creative in all ways, right? So, you know, we, we talked about it in terms of, of uh, actuality and potentiality and try to maximize the, the sum of all actuality and the, uh, the sum of all potentiality multiplied together, right? So, you know, it's a, it's a product of two sums. But the thing is, is that we could just as easily have said, uh, the product of two sums in terms of have every desirable experience and to create every desirable thing. And, and the universe, of course, is going to say, well, everything is desirable and it's just going to go do it all. Now, the, the, the thing that we're getting here is that, you know, if we're, if we're really going to be um, you know, kind of grounding these concepts, what we notice is, is that there is uh, found to be this relationship between the notion of life and meaningfulness the notion of life and consciousness, the notion of meaningfulness and consciousness, and that these, these three uh, sort of act as a kind of ordinating basis for what the notion of goodness is in the, re in the notion of right relationship. So uh, based on that, we could say, well, at the very least, the world will be a healthier place. People will be happier, and they'll be more glad to live there in that world. Um, now, you know, we could talk about happiness set points and, and, and all sorts of things like that, but the notion of health is essentially much more of a grounded thing relative to the, to, to the, to, um, you know, the absence of life, essentially, you know, the, the difference between ourselves and a rock is enormous. So in effect, there's a, there's a kind of uh, holistic, uh, almost fractal way of thinking about it. And, and, and to me, that's a, that, that just goes back into the notion of, of beauty and aesthetics. Um, so, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about ethics, but the, but the twin concept to that is one of ethics. And so one thing we can... Aesthetics. Aesthetics, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, we, we've talked about the, the good, and to some extent we've talked a little bit about the true, but now it's time to talk about the beautiful. One thing we can say categorically is that embodying these concepts, these principles, that the world to be will be much more beautiful than anything we could imagine today. So the concept of the goodness of choice is connected to a wholeness of self, a wholeness of world and a wholeness of relationship between self and world. Yeah, that's the true part of it, right? And so now we're talking about the beautiful part. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, I could, I could seek to fulfill a desire that would have causal consequences that would damage the choice-making capacity for something desirable for somebody else. And yet you I say, would say, 
I would say under those circumstances, you have not fully realized the truth of your desire. Right. What you think of your desire on a surface level is actually reflective of, or maybe even a misinterpretation of a much deeper desire, which is far more holistic and true, even for yourself. So talk about the, con the consideration process, the thoughtfulness, the conscientiousness process that informs the clarity of desire that informs right choice. Well, the, the key word was already just spoken. I mean, you, you, you said clarity, right? So if, I, if I'm confused, parts of me are in conflict with other parts of me. It's a pretty good bet that parts of me are also going to be in conflict with other people. And so, in effect, what we're, what we're getting to here is, is that if I, if I want to be in right relationship with other people, I have to be in right relationship with all of myself. I, I need to... To, to have a, a reflexiveness between um, getting the internal practices right and getting the external practices right. It's just a little hard to imagine that we would be able to do one without the other. So in effect, what we're, what we're saying therefore is that, um, you know, to, to, to develop the kind of continuity of self and the kind of continuity of other is also to have developed the kind of continuity of the past to the future, right? That I, that I'm in a sense creating a, a, a goodness of outcome in the long term based upon the goodness of internal relationships and the goodness to self to world relationship in the moment. So I can't predict the future, but I can say that whatever future is going to be will be most enabled by healthy self, healthy relation to world. That is the, the maximum that I can do to create the outcome of healthy world, i.e. future possibilities actually being uh, good outcomes. So if I have a desire and I haven't felt through the desire clearly enough, if I haven't settled that and, and really recognized the wholeness of it, then that wholeness isn't going to reflect into the relationship between self and other, and it won't reflect into the relationship between uh, past or present and the future. So if I want to create a good relationship as a, a good future outcome, if I want to be kind to my future self or the future self of the world, then in effect, what I need to do is I need to start with becoming clear within myself, becoming a whole and holistic being. Um, in the space of being self-actualized, then I have the option, the open door to be world-actualized. This is so beautiful because it means I can't, understand the world well if I have inner conflicts because different parts of me are going to be trying to understand it differently. But I also can't understand myself wholly if I'm not in right relationship with the world because I'm not separable from the world. Right. And so there's a relationship of considering all of the parts of myself and bringing them into connection with each other and also considering me in relationship with the world. And the past and the future. Yeah. Or the future and the past. I mean, it's, you know, again, trying to account for the relationship between the past, the present, and the future is just as much a part of this as, as the specific things that you're mentioning. So, again, I know there's going to be many parts of this, but one part of the kind of Buddhist idea of desire being the cause of suffering probably is connected to the idea of desires that are not fully clarified. Yes, I would say so. So what happens is, is that um, 
and 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 I think that we need to be careful about the the notion of desire. I mean, first of all, it's 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 a different thing to say desire than to say want or need. But it's also, um, you know, important for us to distinguish between desire of form versus desire of feeling. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, if the only way that I uh, perceive that I have been successful is if I happen to a year from now have a Rolls Royce. And a year from now, I end up with a Tesla that I'm going to be uh, disappointed from the perspective of wanting a Rolls Royce. But uh, on the other hand, if the if the feeling of freedom is is fundamentally the thing that I'm looking for, then it's probably more likely I'm going to be happier with the Tesla. So the, the, the point is, is that if I try to constrain the structure of what the future is going to look like based upon some sort of shape, some sort of form, some sort of a preconditional picture of what it looks like, then um, it is almost certainly the case that the universe that manifests is going to be different than that. And I will for certain have suffering. I will perceive the difference between what I thought that I wanted and what actually happened as being uh, the defining condition of, of my well-being. And of course, uh, since the universe uh, always has uh, more than we bring to it, um, then in effect, there's always going to be difference between what we imagine and what actually manifests. So therefore, uh, any amount of uh, specification as to the form of the future is, is, is always going to lead to disappointment. This is the artist's dilemma. You know, when they, when they have an image in mind as to the painting they want to create, but then they, they need to depend upon the strength of their hand and the fineness of their muscle motion and the quality of the paints and the canvas and how dry or humid it might be that day, how much sunlight there may be. The image that ends up on the canvas might be actually pretty different than the thing that they imagined that they wanted to create. In fact, it's almost certain to be the case. And so in effect, the, uh, the artist is, if they're saying, well, it's different than I imagined, so therefore it's no good and rips up the canvas and throws it away, they've deprived the world of the experience of what it actually is. So in effect, there's a there's a need for us to basically say, well, attachment to form is a problem. But if we think instead about the attachment to feeling, by that I mean uh, the desire to be loving, the desire to um, experience joy and to, and to experience health and to you know, sort of appreciate the good things in life and to really um, you know, actually have affirmation as to the miraculousness of it all, then um, you know, losing touch with one's own feeling, becoming insensitive, unable to, to sense, unable to, to yearn or to have hope or to, or to desire the beautiful woman or to, to move forward in a circumstance where, where there's, there's, there's a good thing to strive for. Um, if we don't have the feeling of that, if we don't, in a sense, embody uh, within ourselves um, the, the recognition of a, of a goodness associated with beauty and with all of those uh, things like goodness and truth, um, that would be to have let go of too much. That would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We, we, we need to let go of the attachment to form. But I think that it's actually necessary for us to maintain an attachment to good feeling. And, and this, this is why a win-win is always possible. Not if you're attached to form. This is correct. Yeah. There's, there's other reasons that support that particular uh, assertion. And there's, there's other theorems that are derived from that that are actually even uh, at least as important. But the point is, is that um, we really do need to 
uh, have the hope of a win-win solution if we're going to uh, search for one and to essentially establish that there is a win-win solution, to establish that there is a good basis of hope, to, to have desire be a fundamental aspect of what moves and motivates us to live and to, to, to be healthy, um, you know, then, like I said, it, it, the, the meaningfulness, the beauty, the, you know, it has to look good, be good, and feel good at the same time. Otherwise, we're, we're, we're not doing it right. So, well, we've covered so much. There's also so many areas we'd like to go, but this has already been uh, past time. In wrapping up, two questions uh, for listeners. One is if they want to explore these concepts in more depth, what would you suggest for their study? And also, what would you suggest for practice for people wanting to develop in their quality of choice making? Well, in the first case, um, you know, to, to study more, I mean, obviously, there's the world is a rich place, we want to really, first of all, um, be reflective, you know, have, having a good meditation practice or having a, a, a good, um, you know, sort of therapeutic process or, or some sort of processing that one does with one's friends and things like that uh, is, is actually pretty important. I mean, obviously, there's there's the uh, UVSM website, there's uh, the Eminent Metaphysics Manuscript and, 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 and other materials that are available and out there. Um, but, you know, in the sense of, of making sense of all of those kinds of things, uh, small group conversations, um, you know, reflective in connection to uh, traditions you may already know that, that you've explored very deeply and, and really gotten to, to a deep place with uh, may assist you in, in, in learning about some of these topics. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's an awful lot of different directions a person can go as far as conversation is concerned, but, but a certain amount of curiosity of, 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 of always uh, wanting to, to, to really pay attention to what are the good questions and to seek to, to, to develop clarity, you know, to, to, you know, a, a good, a good spiritual truth or a good physical or, 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 or physics truth is, is, is not something which is simple so much as it is something which is profoundly clear. And so in effect, you know, we, we want to strive for clarity. We want to, to notice, um, you know, get disciplined about the assumptions. Notice, notice when we're bringing assumptions in and, and to ask questions about those, to check those kinds of things, to really pay attention and be discerning about your experiences and the meaning of those experiences and the, and the choices you're making and what those choices mean. And to really just develop a practice of continual reflexiveness about reflectiveness about these these aspects, um, and if you do all of that, you can't go far wrong. This was a, this was a delight. I'm super curious to see what questions and comments come from listeners when this podcast airs. If uh, if you have questions and you uh, submit them, then We'll see if we can uh, get Forrest to, if he's open to answer those. Uh, I, I imagine this is a podcast worth listening to more than once. And Forrest, thank you for your time, both in considering these things as deeply as you have to help bring clarity about these topics and for being here today. You're welcome. Signing off for now. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Forrest Landry. 
If you like this episode, then please share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. If you're hungry for more information on these topics, check out Forrest's website, uvsm.com, and Daniel's blog, civilizationemerging.com. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.